Consequence Podcast Network. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there, some sort of demented creature surviving in the wilderness, full grown by now. Some folks claim they've even seen him right in this area. From the cold, chilly cabins of Camp Crystal Lake to outer space, we are Halloweenies! Greetings and welcome to Halloweenies, a Jason Voorhees podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Justin Gerber, a.k.a. Beethoven's Last Movement. We are forced to record this episode from separate locations here in the U.S. because, uh, for those of you listening 25 years from now, (laughs) we are recording this episode in the middle of stay-at-home orders due to the COVID-19 virus. Uh, We know it's it's a tough time for the, the people here recording. We know it's a tough time. For everybody listening at home, and I think I speak on behalf of all of us here at Halloweenies when I say that we are honored that you have chosen to spend your time with us as a, you know, a bit of a distraction. And, you know, hopefully if, if we all keep doing our part, we can get through this uh, sooner rather than later. Um, to have the worst transition of all time, let's talk about Friday 13th Part 2. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our season launch episode where we discussed the one that started it all, 1980s Friday the 13th, but now... It's time to turn our attention from a mama to a mama's boy. That's right, 1981's Friday the 13th Part 2, where we encounter Jason Voorhees, the killer, for the first time, but maybe not the Jason the general public is familiar with. But before we spend this episode discussing the second Friday the 13th for April the 13th, let's introduce ourselves and discuss when we first saw the film. Let's kick it off with Mikey V, Mike Vanderbilt. This is Mike, a, uh, the boy beast, Vanderbilt. I don't know if I can remember the exact uh, first time that I saw Friday the 13th Part 2. There was a point, you know, when I was into horror movies in the late 80s, you know, 8, 9, 10 years old, where I would rent the movies. But you'd rent, let's say you rented like 2, 3, and 4. They would all run together to me. Like I couldn't tell you which Friday the 13th uh, each death happened at but i do remember a weird uh this really weird story i have where when i was working at camelot music at chicago ridge mall when i was about 19 or 20 i had this weird dream that involved friday the 13th part two specifically and then when i was stocking the next day it came in on vhs and i i purposely bought it on vhs because i felt like it was some sort of sign that i needed to own friday the 13th part two okay all right that's interesting uh... Who's who's next up here? I guess it would be my my brother, Mackenzie Mac. That's right. This is um, Mackenzie Muffin Gerber, and <laughs> I do not remember the first time I watched this film, but um, I it had to, we definitely watched this in order. I feel, um, and I can't remember. Justin, did we watch the Friday the Thirteenth movies after Nightmare, or did we even was there any rhyme or reason to it? Do you think? I, I could not tell you. I feel like I watched yeah. all those movies in the same month for the first time back in like 93 or something <laughs> Probably, like that. Probably, yeah. 92, 93. So ultimately, I, I don't remember when I first watched it, but I do remember uh, 
many, many years ago, when I first moved up here to Chicago, <laughs> I went to a Halloween party dressed as this version of Jason with the pillowcase over my head and, and, and rope around my neck and pitchfork. And I was so proud of myself, but I went to a party where essentially zero people knew of Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th part two and his costume. So I'm sure I just looked like I was going as like a, a bootleg member of the KKK <laughs> oh, and God. it was uh, awkward to say the least, but I had a, a blast. I have some pictures. I'll try to find one and post it. Uh, I think it's one of me like hugging my friend Allie, but, uh, it was good times. Uh, I, I, I have a soft spot for this movie. Um, I'm all, I'm always into those weird underdog movies that aren't really quite what the franchise ended up becoming. I think that's, I think that's also why Freddy's revenge becomes, has become somewhat of a, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess a, a fav- a fan favorite now over the years, you know, cause it's like, it's always the offbeat one that people kind of just like, are like, nah, and then they come back to you and they're like, actually, like, this is like, this is something else. Like, I wonder what if the franchise had just been this. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Uh, a lot to talk about. And um, yeah, yeah. As a, as a sequel, I think it's it's solid. So. All right. All right. Let's go across the pond and uh, <laughs> deep in the heart of Texas for our, our next Halloween. Uh, hi, this is Dan. Um, there's no there's not a lot of D and C names here to give that alliterative effect. So I will say, Dan, Ted Bowen, uh, Caffrey, because Ted is, I have a soft spot for Ted. Um, I was at that party, <laughs> Mac, and I was one of the few people who knew who you were. And oh, I will oh, say, as, right. as, as obscure as that costume was, it was not as obscure as a later costume you would do, which was uh, Popeye Doyle from The French Connection, which no one knew <laughs> who you were, even though it was a very, a very accurate uh, costume in both cases. Um, and I actually think I, I saw the second movie around that same time, shortly before you dress up like that. I, I always knew that Jason um, wore the pillowcase in this movie and didn't have the hockey mask yet. But I don't think I actually saw this movie until pretty late in life. And I think I think you, Mac, were saying it was a really, really good sequel. And we watched it all at um, the Ainsley House, where Justin and I lived at various times. Um, yeah, and I remember being kind of kind of blown away by how sober it was and how it didn't get devolved into silly Friday the 13th sequel land yet. Um, but yeah, and then as a, honestly, going through all these movies again, I think as a kid, the only ones I saw at least well enough to remember them as a kid were um, the first one, Jason Goes to Hell, uh, and maybe Freddy versus Jason. I think that was it. Like, I'm watching a lot of these, and I'm like, I've seen clips from them. I've seen the kills before. Um but they all kind of run in my memory the same thing. I think that this podcast is the first time I'm really sitting down and watching them. Yeah, Dan, for me, it's funny. I don't remember the first time I saw part two, um, but I remember I saw part three before I saw part two. So my first exposure to Jason wearing the bag over his head was actually watching Friday the 13th part three, because as we know, that starts off with the flashback. Vivid memories of that, uh, right. but I do not remember the first time I saw part two. I know I saw part two after I saw... I guess I saw one, three, five, seven, and eight before I saw part two. Yeah, that's I remember that vividly because I saw one and three taped off of HBO, I think, and then there was a bunch that were on USA on, on some random marathon, and then finally I watched the the, uh, the second one. So it almost seemed like I was watching a prequel at that point because it's so jarring, having grown up with the the lore of Jason and his hockey mask, and then seeing him not look anything like that. I mean, even his wardrobe looks completely different. And not let alone the you know the bag over his head with the the one hole punch in there. 
And I'm happy that yeah. I excited everybody as much as <laughs> I excited me. That's the that's the perils, ladies and gentlemen, of doing this over uh, Skype is that we can't really see. I should have prompted somebody immediately, but um, no, I <laughs> thought you were right. just gonna. I thought you were gonna keep going. I thought you had something else that you were gonna talk about. <laughs> well, there was absolutely nothing else yeah. to add to that. But uh, well, it is funny that I, I think J- I've always said this thing. Jason is more famous as a figure than Freddy or Halloween or whatever, but, but the individual movies are not as well known. You know what I'm saying? Like growing up, I, I feel like we always talked about Jason on the playground and, and the hockey mask was so iconic, but they, they do blend together, uh, especially um, in the middle there, but we'll talk about that. We shall, we shall. It's one of those cool things that I think that, you know, if you're a big Friday fan, you kind of take pleasure in the fact that you know that Miss Voorhees is the original killer, and then Jason had a pillowcase in two, and then he got the hockey mask in three. You know, it's one of those things you, you on the playground, like you're saying, Dan, that I think you know who actually watched these, watched these movies if they know those 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 few facts. <laughs> That's a good point. Let's get into some more facts. Let's move into our our first category, which is uh, where we find out some some news that may or may not be out there, but there's only one way to find out gang. And that's heading over to Steve Christie's bulletin board. Hello. Who's that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? Well, as per usual in the Friday the 13th camp, uh, pun intended, not a lot of news out there. Sadly, the only real news out there is that there's a new board game coming out. I'm not sure how they wrangled the rights to that, but God bless them. It's called, what's it called? I think Friday the 13th um, Return to Camp Blood or something like that. I, I don't know how they got the rights to this, but if anybody wants to investigate that, feel free to check it out. And we'll see if it actually comes out, to be honest with you. I'm not sure if it will. What, what do you think, Mac? Uh, I think it'll absolutely come out. There's a big ask for these games lately. And uh, rights-wise, I don't know. I I mean... I think that I think the rights to make a film are in dispute, but I don't know if the property. I mean, you know, there's still like toys being made of Jason all the time, so I think that there's certain things that are just uh, are are able to be licensed out still, um, such as toys and board games and whatnot. So I think we'll definitely see this come out. Um, I'm looking up the name of it now. Well, as you looked that up, um, Dan, what do you think about about this game? I, I, you're a big board game fan, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I hate board games. I know, me too. I, mean, I, I should I shouldn't say that because I I feel like I say that and then it gets back to people, and then I'll be at someone's house and they're like, "You want to play a board game?" and I I want to be a good sport, so I'm like, "Sure." And then they're like, "Oh, I hear you hate board games." I feel like it. I feel like it circulates. You you hate them too, right? You, you, I do. Right? It's it's nothing for it's 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 definitely a, it's not you. It's yeah. me situation. I I, I, I I know people get a lot of solace ah. playing board games, a lot of fun, but uh, you know what? It just it's not my cup of tea. To my, quote Spike Lee. It's, like it's, it's as, uh. It's got a release for the summer. It's called Horror at Camp Crystal Lake. A new Camp Crystal Lake. Um, a lame title. <laughs> the, uh, they couldn't well, legally workshop it. I don't know it. what this game. I don't know what this is going to look like. I can't really get a good view of the game board, but um, it's a six-player board, one cabin board, ten critical supply cards. Blah 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 oh, blah. Man, I actually enjoy these kinds of games. Uh, I don't play them often, but the horror-oriented games, and the one game that I've, I've been dying to play, uh, which is not horror, but uh, is ma- was made from a horror master, is Big Trouble in Little China. There's a board game out there that I'm dying. It's got to be nuts. <laughs> I guess my thing with board games is that it's, well, maybe well especially right now because we can't get all get in the same room together anyway, 
but even if if uh, quarantine wasn't going on right now, it's always so hard to get all your friends in a room together, right? Just as we get older, our schedules are different. And so my thing is like, if you are able to do that, I'd rather just hang out and maybe watch one of these movies or, or drink or talk or whatever. I, I think the board game thing just feels like it, it puts a big wedge in the, in the conversation. And then you get people who are really into it and serious and they get mad at me jokes <laughs> and things like that. Exactly. That's, that's always my experience. Yeah. Mike no Vanderbilt, the board game. Mike Vanderbilt, pro yeah. or anti board games. I, I like the concept of it. I went out, I once went out and bought like all the classic board games. So I'd have them at the house, like clue and monopoly went to the target, you know, spending money. And I don't think I've opened any of them. Um, <laughs> Like I, I like I like the idea of getting together with friends and playing them, especially Twister, but I Ooh. I don't do it very often. I don't so I don't know. I guess uh, I guess I'm a moderate when it comes to it. Like if anybody invited me over and wanted to play it, I'd be absolutely up for it. But the thing I found with board games that aren't like Monopoly or Clue, the classics, the rules are usually so um, what do I want to say detailed, in depth, and they they sound just made up. Like, I feel like, I feel like maybe all the, like all the board games have been made and everything else should just be a variation on them. Well, that's a, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I, I was playing the, uh, the thing board game, which I think is actually really entertaining. The problem is with some of these games, it takes forever to learn how to play them. Yeah. But once you know, and if, let's say if you ever, if you ever came over or something, cause I know Mike has the thing ga- board game. If, if people came over, there's a situation where if everybody but you knows how to play, it's easy to pick up on it watching other people do it. Do you know what I mean? Okay, yes. If, you, yes. if, you're, if, five, if five of you are sitting down trying to learn it from the get-go, it, it took us about <laughs> two hours to figure out how to set up that game and start to you actually play it when we started time. doing you it. watch the movie. I, I, like to call them, uh, I like to call them bored, B-O-R-E-D. Yeah. <laughs> that's, like the old, I always... that's like the old Norm MacDonald joke, chairman of oh, the board. Yes. <laughs> Chairman of the board of the carrot yeah. Well, and that's how I thought. That's what I thought it really originally was because, you know, when you're a kid, you're playing these games usually when you're inside and you got nothing to do, you know what I mean? Like, Keep talking. Yeah, I got a quote I'm trying, I'm trying to find that I want to sum this up you with. You play them when oh, they're bored. Okay. The, yeah, the, the rules well, thing is, is really aggravating. Like, the yeah, that like that that period at the beginning where everyone should... And, and then you start playing a certain way, and then you realize you've been playing it the wrong way. And you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, like gouge my eyes out let's just all put on friday the 13th what you know why why pretend why <laughs> pretend to be in the friday the 13th when you when you can be in it by yeah, watching oh, it. why pretend to be in friday the 13th with little mini cards and little cabins where we can watch the movie friday the 13th and talk about it the entire time Here, here's my here's i like to sum up my feelings it. i like to sum up my feelings on board games and you know this category alone by saying a quote from Norman Jewison's Injustice for All, starring Al Pacino, where Al Pacino says, at this point, I would just like to say that what this committee is doing in theory is highly commendable. However, in practice, it sucks. That's my feeling on board games. Uh, And sadly, we still have not, I think we've reached out, but we have not heard back from Larry Zerner, who is now a lawyer, who who famously played Shelley in Friday the 13th Part 3. We'd love to have him on and have an in-depth conversation about how this lawsuit got started, how it ended, and how it ramped back up again, and what he thinks the future holds for Friday the 13th. So, you know, I'm pretty confident we're going to get Larry Zerner eventually, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. But before then, speaking of Friday the 13th Part 3, I think it's uh, time to head out to where he hung out with his buddies 
in that second sequel, and I'm talking about a place called Higgins Haven. I can't get this door open. There's something behind it. Oh, I smell something burning. Here, take this. Let me do it. No wonder somebody put this chair there. Something is burning. Lights aren't working either. Oh, real smart. What's going on here? Okay, for this section, we're going to talk, you know, about the the background of this movie, what the movie's ultimately about, and you know, the casting. I'm sorry, not the cast necessarily, but the crew behind it, the directors, the writers, the producers, and a lot of this information obviously gleamed from our good friend, the internet, and and of course, Crystal Lake Memories, which is streaming still on Shutter for all of you, for all of you who have Shutter out there. Terrific documentary. You should really check it out. Um, from what we know. Paramount Pictures producer Frank Mancuso Sr., whose son became a huge part of the franchise going forward, by the way. He originally planned on the sequels of Friday 13th telling individual original stories, much like what John Carpenter and Deborah Hill did with Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. However, other producers insisted that Part 2 follow the adventures of a grown-up Jason, even though, obviously, if you look at the first movie, that makes... No sense. <laughs> they want him to take over the mantle from his mother. And hey, guess who won that war? Jason. <laughs> as, same as it ever was. Uh, although, this is something I'd never really realized until years later. That Sean S. Cunningham, who produced and directed the first one, really had nothing to do with the franchise until, until it went to New Line about 13 years later. So yeah, he did not return for this, nor did his good friend, writer Victor Miller. <laughs> Neither of them returned for this movie, but a good deal of the original's production team did. And the most notable of these returnees um, was Steve Miner, who was an associate producer, associate producer, assistant director, unit production manager on the original Friday. He really did a lot of stuff for that movie. And for part two, he became the producer and director. And I think compared to a lot of the Friday directors who who would come later on, we should spend some time discussing his career because it's, it's had its ups and downs, but he's made some notable movies. Uh, Dan Caffrey, quick question for you. Are you familiar with who Steve Miner is off the top of your head? Am I? Hold up. Didn't he do uh, H2O? He sure did. Steve Miner directed yeah, right. Halloween yeah, yeah, yeah. H2O. That's right. What, which says, I'm, I, it's still one of my favorite Halloween movies. And he, uh, oh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm doing spoiler alert. I'm looking, uh, I'm just looking at other directors. He's done a few things, a few movies that I actually like quite a bit. Um, we've got H2O. I, I am a big defender of Lake Placid. I actually really, really enjoyed that movie. Yeah. Um, Bill, Day Bill Pullman. Da- Day of the Dead. Now that's, that's not, that's that crappy, like, it's not a sequel to the remake of the, of, of the remake of Dawn of the Dead. No, it's, it's like a kind remake. Of a shitty remake. Is it even worth seeing at all? No, it's Mina Suveri and Ving Rhames in a different role from his role of Dawn of the Dead. It's really awful, though. That's it. Oh, man, he did. How, I think House is a really, really underrated horror movie. Oh, how, how, House is one of my all time favorite like horror comedies. I agree. Yeah. And, and Sean S. Cunningham actually you know, produced that, too, by the way. And something then he did, I uh, haven't seen uh, is Warlock. I still haven't seen Warlock oh, for some reason. Warlock is, is awesome. Warlock. <laughs> I've only. I just remember seeing that VHS cover forever, and Justin and I would we'd always debate like, is this the day that we rent war- the Warlock series? And we just never did. Well, the poster looks like... so silly. The poster it has that dude from Arachnophobia on it, um, and, and just like a cartoon shadow. But is it is it actually a horror movie, Mike? Is it? Is it's it... 
so the se- uh, I wanted to put it out. I did not like the sequels. I didn't even see part three yet. Um, but it's um, it's more of a it is it is horror in the sense that you're dealing with uh, uh, what is it? Julian Sands is a warlock in uh, you know the past who makes his way to the future, and he's followed by a warlock hunter played by Richard E. Grant, who uh, tracks him in modern day L.A. And it's uh, it's kind of that fish out of water thing. I I would say it's. I would qualify it as a horror comedy. Uh, I think it's uh, it's it's sharp. I think it's uh, slickly executed is how I would describe it. I will say, though, uh, that I believe Warlock 3, um, the, the Julian Sands character, is played by another actor, the great genre veteran Bruce Payne, who's always good. He was a villain in Pastor 57. He's been in a number of things. He's always good. I think he was in Howling 6, The Freaks, as well. <laughs> um, one of the oh, lesser also, Howling entries. Also, before we move... Bef- before we move on, this guy did directed Mad Mel in Forever Young. Very great good. romantic film. Uh, <laughs> great score, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so rad. And My Father the Hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is, that I, with, I, is that with like Gerard Depardieu or yes, something? Sir. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't is. even know. Some of these movies I just remember yeah, like seeing at the video store. Uh, for, Forever Young, does Mel Gibson get struck by lightning? Am I making that up? You're uh, making yes, that up. You're making that up. Okay. I, don't know why, I don't know why. I thought you got struck by lightning, and that's how and you Forever Young is. Forever I think young. Forever Young is actually really solid, Dan. I, I would definitely suggest that you and Susan watch that. I think you oh, and yeah. Susan would like it. It's really and good. Let's not, let's not forget about Soul Man. Infamously, Soul Man. You know what? Oh, yeah. I have to say, C. Thomas Howell. Yeah, the infamous blackface movie with with C. Thomas Howell. And also, most I think notably, and I've actually seen this movie. Big Bully, which I think is Rick Moranis' last theatrical release. Does that sound right to anybody out there? I want to say that's uh, right. I think that, 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 that tracks. Was yeah. that with him and Tom Arnold? I think, I think yeah, right. that's right. I got to say, there is not... I mean, I guess, I guess you could say he's done a... Um, I guess doing horror movies is sort of a consistent thing in Steve Miner's career, but then also these random ass, not necessarily horrible movies or anything, just... Oh, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. I really like that movie that about the... Uh, about the girl who's the horse jumper. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yes, yeah, I know exactly it. which one you're talking about. It's good. It's a Disney movie. It's uh, it's a true story about this woman who, uh, back when they used to jump horses off of diving boards in Atlantic City, she's a champion jumper, but she hits her head and gets injured. It's a good Disney. Yeah, I, hey, you know, I think C. Miners had a very respectable career. There are at oh, least like five movies on here that I think are are decent to great. To your point about how like uh, consistency in his career, I think if you look uh, at Steve Miner's career leading up to uh, Friday the 13th, I think he's just kind of your traditional workman-like director who yes. will take any any gig that's offered to him. And I don't think, if you watch any of his movies, I don't think he has like a very distinct style. I don't think you could pick out you know, minorisms from... <laughs> Classic his, minor. <laughs> minor. From his... From his films, but like he just he goes in, he gets the job done, and I would assume he's probably doing a lot of television these days. He does. He actually That's directed it, yeah. a lot of Canadian shows, uh, Smallville, a number of episodes of Smallville. Mike Vanderbilt, quick question for you. We, yes. We, we can all pretty much agree that he doesn't have any major works, but would you say he's got some uh, minor works? <laughs> oh, man. Get out. Wow. Get out. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, so Steve Miner, a lot Texas Rangers with James Vanderbeek. Like, I, I know all the movies he's done. There's no like weird, obscure, straight-to-video movies, really, that he's in, that he's been involved with. Um, respectable career for Mr. Miner, and we'll be talking about him next month because he also did Friday the 13th Part 3. However, we need to talk about the famous writer of Friday the 13th Part 2 by the name of Ron Kurtz. Everybody know Ron Kurtz? 
Yeah, I know Ron Kurz. Oh, yeah? Tell me about Ron Kurz, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote Friday the 13th Part 2. You are so right. He also directed. He also wrote a movie called Eyes of the Stranger, which was directed by Ken Viderhorn, who did Return of the Living Dead Part 2 and Shockwaves. So he's got some horror credibility there. Um, I love Return of the Living Dead Part 2. I, yeah. I, Oh, go ahead. We can talk about. I know. I, I just. I, I think it's a great. Um, I just think uh, it's Return of the Living Dead Part Two. I feel is the kind of movie that if you really wanted to show like young kids a horror movie, yeah. I think that one could get a pass despite the R rating. Yeah. Like, I think it's it's fun enough and um, not so terrifying that it would warp them. It's funny that that one and the original are both rated R, whereas the first one is so much more vicious. And Absolutely. You know what I mean? It feels like a PG-13 movie. Yeah, I agree. It's, now, I feel like today it could get a PG-13 or even like a, a TV-14 if it was a TV show or a made-for-TV thing. Uh, now, here's an two? interesting uh, Ron Kurz yeah. film. Has anybody seen 1979's Animal House ripoff King Frat? No, but it's also directed by King <laughs> Viderhorn. The Viderhorn-Kurtz connection. Uh, Great title, this though. is King Frat, uh, there is a fart contest at one point in the movie, like on a stage. And that's all you really wow. need to know about King Fred. It's a, gr- <laughs> it's got a great theme song that'll get stuck in your head. Um, and, uh, I, it's, uh, it, it, I know it's a favorite of Mike McBeardo McPadden because it was featured in his book, uh, teen movie hell. Now, hey, you, uh, this movie should have been called King fart. <laughs> that's what I was saying. You switch the R and the A around, you get, you get King Fart. There's the, there is that Fart the movie, right? This, this yes, there the is. Uh, wonderful film. I can't tell you the director or the writer of that particular project. <laughs> maybe Ron Kurtz was involved in that too. Who knows? I don't. Who, maybe we'll never know. Um, and it looks like he came back for the final chapter, Ron Kurtz. Well, I think he gets some credit for the next couple because there oh. are scenes of his from Part Two that show up in those movies. All right. But we'll talk about those in the, in the future as well. Uh, a couple other product placements I noticed in this film. Dairy Queen and Burger King. Randomly uh, name-dropped in this movie. I, I, I thought maybe uh, this was a precursor <laughs> to Josie and the Pussycats with the constant commercialism. But uh, le- uh, needless to say, the last hour of the film, not a lot of commercial drops. Just uh, didn't know if anybody knows anything else. Any KFC mentions that I missed, uh, maybe? Uh, I did I notice Dairy it. Queen. But that's about it. <laughs> and, and the Burger King. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the the VHS copy back in the day. Because for so many of us who couldn't watch horror movies growing up, this is as close as we could get to experiencing a horror movie. And the irony, and I think I'm using irony correct, that Jeff and Sandra's death was deemed too violent for the movie, right? Yet on the back of the video box is the deleted scene of the spear that's going through <laughs> Jeff's back into Sandra. How is that fine to just have laying out in a video store, but we can't show it in the, in the movie theater? Can anybody work out the MPAA for me? I've been trying to figure them out for decades. Uh, let's go to Mike Vanderbilt for this. I, I, it's, it's bizarre. I think the... I think it's just, it's probably, I mean, the, the real answer is probably just they had a promo photo that they took of that on the set, and that's what they decided to put on the back of the box. And the MPAA probably didn't even look at the VHS boxes. <laughs> it's out of our hands. It's done. Yeah. It's, it's for the VMPAA, uh, the Video yeah. Motion Picture Association of America. <laughs> Mac, do you remember seeing this box growing up? Were, 
I do, and I'm looking at it right now, which is nuts because they have Jenny also standing behind Miss Voorhees' head. <laughs> like, oh, I hope you didn't look at this box before you watch the first film. Oh. And uh, <laughs> Matt, quick, quick, quick uh, very note. Strange. And then, growing yeah. up, when I would when I saw that with Jenny standing behind, I thought that Jason had just smashed his head through the table, and that's what he looked like with his mask off. Growing really? up, yeah, that's what I thought. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about the mother or anything like that. I just that's what I thought looking at the back yeah. of that box. And then you've also got Paul holding Jason, and 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 it's kind of it's sad that they show Jason in the pillowcase on the back of the box because I think that's one of the best reveals in the movie as well. When you finally see him like full on with the pillowcase on, uh, coming out of the bed. Well, because uh, there's that subtlety of, of the the VHS back of the box. Remember, it's just you see the arrow and you see Ned faking drowning. That's all you see in the back of the box. They don't give away anything else. And I think that that obviously works a lot better. Dan Caffrey, do you remember seeing these, these, cause you were on the first episode. Do you have a similar experience growing up? Maybe when you were too young and you just, all you had was those, uh, those, the VHS boxes and the video stores to look at. I certainly did. Um, and, and it's funny too, that you mentioned the, the Jeff and Sandra one, because I remember, yeah, I remember that, the the still was depicted in a way where you couldn't quite tell what it was. Like I could tell there were two people having sex, but I didn't couldn't quite tell what whether it was a spear, they were getting stabbed, or it was something else. And when I think back to those horror movie VHS boxes in general, I felt like they all had the same thing. All because I'm thinking about the original for Halloween, it had this. All of them had a sex scene on the back of it because in Halloween you see um, it's very similar to this. You see Linda and Bob from behind. They're not getting killed, but it's just sort of a vague tangle of bodies and sheets. You always see a still of the killer, not one that's like really full on, but enough to enough to spoil things. Like I remember the Michael Myers one. It was, um, I think it was when he was just like looking down at the phone or something, but it was from a pr- weird profile view, so you couldn't quite tell if that was a mask or his actual face. And then they and then they always show like some kind of gory scene, like like the the Mrs. Voorhees one you're talking about. So I very much remember that. I didn't at the time when I was little. I didn't know that the second one was jason with a pillowcase i didn't know that he didn't have the hockey mask yet so i think when i saw you know jason grabbing the dude i don't i don't think i associate that with being the killer i thought it was just some kind of kind of random thing you know um so yeah i think i think any person who grew up in the late 80s early 90s um totally remembers getting their horror movie uh digest through these vhs boxes some some of which were better than the actual movies (laughs) Not this, not it's this true because well, because it allows your imagination to run wild, especially as a as a young child. You know, I remember the food of the food of the gods boxes. I thought were so cool and creepy looking um, as a kid, and then seeing those movies as I've grown up, and they're god awful and scary <laughs> about them. But just seeing that giant, like a really detailed painting of a giant rat eating a woman, that was really freaky to me. But you don't really see anything that scary in, in any yeah, of those movies. I agree. Mike, 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 also. Uh, sorry, sorry, Matt. Go ahead. No, I was just saying something we didn't talk about last time was the poster art for Friday the Thirteenth, uh, as well as this one. Uh, that that that's a great poster. That first one, mm-hmm. uh, just the outline of of Miss Voorhees, and you see the kids standing by the lake. Um, and I I can't remember in in that poster is 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 she holding a machete? It looks like a, the it, sequel, I think it's a machete or a long knife or something like that, you know, a butcher knife. And then because the, in the yeah, in the sequel poster, it's just the outline of what we what we know now is Jason and then he's holding an axe. Does anybody get an axe in this film? I was just going to ask you guys that question. There's a lot of machete deaths. There's a lot of spears I, and, spear, and machetes and strangulations. I can't and, remember there being an axe used in this movie, which I thought was very strange. Well, it's, I don't it's, think it's, there's an axe death again until part 4. 
I think you're probably right. Well, I th- no, well, there's, there's definitely an axe death in the third one. You know what I'm talking about? Got it. I oh, might yeah. forget. Axe to the head, Jason, <laughs> at the very end. Oh. <laughs> well, um, but I also yeah, will course. say one of my favorite um, alt posters is uh, Jenny holding the um, the pitchfork out in front of her. You seen that? I think it's like a foreign film poster. Well, yeah, because the thing about I love the VHS box art for Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. I love that stark outline with the blue and just the title in it. But that I don't think was actually used. That wasn't used. I know that wasn't used for the theatrical one sheet. The theatrical one sheet just said Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. The body count continues. You're right, and and actually had the Roman numerals. I don't know if they held on to that. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. It's Roman numerals on the posters, but in the movie, it's Part Two spelled out with the. what is that? An Arabic number, I guess. No, it's Roman. I think it's Roman. Ar- nu- I like Roman. Roman, Roman numerals. Think, yeah. yeah. No, Roman numerals is on the poster, but on the actual film, it's. Uh, oh, it says like yeah, the number two. Like the. It's funny how you describe the number two without pointing it out to somebody. Like you said, is it is it? I don't remember what the origin is. I think it's. I think it's Arabic, but I could be wrong on that. Well, there were some one sheet posters that did have the outline. But I think, like you said, the main one, at least the original one, was the one with the Roman numerals and no no outline. Um, and of course, the tagline was uh, it was succinct, it was succinct it was to the point it was the body count continues. <laughs> That's all you need to know. That was and the I'm tagline. I'm also reading right. I'm also reading right now. Uh, this was a dropped on the Friday the Thirteenth Franchise dot com, but and and this was December two thousand nineteen. But apparently, there was poster art commissioned initially. Um, that had it was it's the outline of of Jason holding the axe, but inside is the lake, and then full grown Jason jumping out and grabbing a, a bikinied woman on a canoe, on, on, and it's it's basically giving away the reveal, and uh, that was the original idea I think for it, and now they're like selling this poster, and I say Jason looks about three times the size of an actual human being. He's <laughs> like a true but, monster um, in this one. Yeah, I'm glad that they didn't use that because. Uh, I do think that that reveal at the end of uh, when he jumps through that window is, is is a great horror reveal as well. I'd seen that poster before and always just assumed it was uh, fan art, honestly. Yeah, so did yeah. I. But it's, yeah, I think that's the actual real deal. I mean, if you look at it, it makes sense that it would be kind of a promotional thing before they actually started filming because he looks nothing like he does in the actual movie. He looks like a moth, like a moss man or something like that, like coming out of the, <laughs> out of the deep woods. Um, well, anything else we'd like to talk about before we get into the actual uh, movie itself? I'm going to take that brutal pause for a let's move on. <laughs> so let's move on to our next category in a, in a section that we have uh, cleverly titled Time and Place. What the hell is that? Humanoid. Organic composition is unclear. Can someone tell me what's on his face? Uh, some kind of 20th century carbon filtration unit. It's a hockey mask. Okay, this is, this is I think, going to be, yeah, I, I, let's explain this again if people are just jumping in. And even for Dan, I'm not sure if Dan listened to the entire first episode, but movie by movie, we're going to treat these like we have no idea what's coming ahead in the future, okay? And we're going to try to figure out where we are and what year it is, okay? So at the end of the first episode, there was some debate whether or not it took place in 1979 where it was when it was actually filmed or 1980 when it came out. And I think at the end of the day, we decided it was 1980. Okay. That's so according to, to if we're watching, you know, Friday the part two, we're going into it. We're assuming that the first one takes place in 1980. So here's some facts about this movie. Okay. That we get. Okay. Paul in the campfire scene 
says that Alice disappeared two months after the events at Camp Crystal Lake in the first movie. So we can assume that the beginning of part two, you know, with Alice walking around the house and getting killed by Jason, takes place in late 1980. Can everybody agree with that? Yeah, August. Right. I always that, figured August. It's supposed to be, August, August, yeah. Yeah. August of yeah, 80. It's supposed to be June 13th, so yeah, it would be August to, uh, 1980. Okay, yes. cool, cool. And then Paul says it's been five years. He kind of just throws it in there. It's been five years since the original, okay? So even though this movie came out in 1981, we are now to assume that takes place in 1985. So let's keep and that in mind. Will also, I will also say because it's a counselor training camp and, and camp hasn't started yet, it's... Wait, no, 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 hold on. Yeah, counselor training camp, right? Because it's yeah. not Crystal Lake. So it would be early in the summer, right? Because they would not have had any kids yet. You would assume it's like late spring, right? Or maybe mid-spring? Yeah, like yeah, like May? May, maybe? Well, here's, here's the you thing, be June is very 13th strange. Or... Yeah. Is that... It's not always going to be Friday the thirteenth in June, which apparent, but a June thirteenth is Jason's birthday, as we've discovered in the last film. So I guess we have to assume it's always in June, and it's always the thirteenth, just not necessarily a Friday, which is contradictory to the title of the movies. Well, but very uh, few, very few Friday the thirteenth movies actually take place on Friday the thirteenth. In fact, I'm pretty sure only the first one and uh, perhaps part six actually take place on Friday the 13th. Well, the chances are that at some point, part two, part three, and part four do because they're pretty much the same week. So at some point, I'm sure it's Friday the 13th. And, and, but we'll, you know what? We'll, we'll give that official uh, assignation when we get to those respective movies. <laughs> okay, well. So we think it's 1985 or it's since the, the first one was what, 1980? As far yeah. as we know. 1981. No, as far as we know, the first one takes place in 1980. So part two takes place in the year 1985. We just have to go with it. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what's also, going on. Also, too, guys, I'm looking this up. So Jason's birthday, like his, his year, his birth year, is supposed to be 1946. <laughs> so June 13th, 1946. But June 13th, 1946 was a Thursday. So, so <laughs> Although I guess, wait, no, but his birthday wouldn't always be on Friday the 13th. I wonder if June 13th in 1980 was on a, a Friday. That well, Dan, I got some good news that, for that, you. That is the way. Um, You're right. You're correct. It was. There you go. But there's also. But Dan, Dan, Dan. We also did some. I did some more digging in which I was trying to figure out all the full moons that took place on Friday the 13th. And (laughs) I discovered that it was. There was like a list of 100, but I figured out (laughs) that it was inaccurate that there were no full moons on any Friday the 13th in 79 or 1980. So we kind of have to treat this as an alternate reality. The days and and the months are different. If it were the Losers Club, this would be like another beam that we hit. Like yeah, exactly. Not quite yeah. The yeah. beam of the Jason. Uh, the, the, the path of the Jason, I should say, for all you uh, Stephen King fans out there. Okay, so 1985 is when part two takes place. As of right now. As of right now. Okay, cool. We established that. I'm proud of us. Let's move on to our, our next section. We're going to be talking about the music of this film, which we have appropriately titled... All right, well, gang, our boy, your boy, uh, Harry Manfredini, uh, returned. He's, he's behind the strings and screams once more. 
uh, from my point of view, I've watched these movies so much that they kind of start to bleed together score-wise. But having listened to the individual soundtracks, um, you, you, you start to notice a few things that stick out. I mean, the opening credits are slightly different, but especially the first two, more or less, they're, he's recycling the same cues. I'm not sure if it's the exact same audio tracks or if they're re-recordings. But what sticks out to me the most from this movie is the the big finale that takes place in Jason's shack. Even though, again, that's kind of a reworking of the eerie from the first one. When I think of that music, I actually think about the finale of part two. What do you think, Mac? I do. Um, And I noticed the sequence in this one as well where that music's used when... Jenny's kind of finally getting away from Jason, but Jason's still tracking her down in the woods and they show the shot of the moon and you kind of hear the music played as a little prelude to uh, the, 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 the Jenny wearing the sweater, faking out Jason with yeah. the mother sequence. Um, I, I, I could have came up with a better name for that sequence, but I had to explain the entire thing. <laughs> uh, but no, that music is great. And it is, it is, if I heard that music, I would know exactly that it was Friday the 13th Part 2. Mm. As for the rest of the score, I don't know. I haven't listened to it on its own. But Justin, you've been you've been kind of dabbling in, in writing some Friday stuff. And I know you've been listening to the scores. But have you noticed any other real differences between the two scores? No, that, that's what I was saying earlier. It, it, a lot of it is kind of just, just the same. Um, maybe spread out a little bit longer, cut short. There's a couple of incidental p- pieces of music, for instance... I think when they're driving into town, there's some rock. There's some rock music playing. And, of course, Jeff plays the harmonica at one point before he's about to make love for the final time with Sandra. But unlike the first one, there isn't a lot of um, original songs. I'll say that. Except for uh, the tune by the Smokey Boys band. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Which is, who are a real band who were based out of Connecticut and are still recording. You can find their latest album on Reverbation.com. Because I love that band. The, the Smoky Boys love, band. Smoky Boy. Mike, this is also why we have more than one person on these podcasts, because there's always somebody who's going to say, actually, we got some good Smoky news, Boys. folks. Smoke the <laughs> SPB. say, let me jump in here real quick, though. I, you know, I love that they're still around, and I have like a huge mad respect. I'm going to totally look this up now. But I will say, watching the film <laughs> the other day, they sh- it, it cuts from, I think it's, what, Terry uh, screaming into no, all of a sudden a, you see this close-up of it, the Fender. The Fender telly just like... It's a great yeah, just cut. Just like rocking it it's, out. And then it pans back and you see... And you do, you not, you do not think it's going to be this band. <laughs> and then it I is, am so glad you like, mentioned that because so I... so pleased. It's so great. I put that in my notes that that is one of my favorite cuts in the movie. Yeah, uh, it goes from Vicky screaming to the the Telecaster, but I think that's a that is a minorism though because he uh, he was very proud of his uh, cut from the 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 dog being killed to the hot dogs. On the that's right. Oh, that's right. You know what? And, I, and I'm thinking about H H two O. He, I mean, the way it opens, even it's like the knife coming down, and you think it's it's Michael Myers or something that just goes into into a pumpkin. Like he's a big fan of of doing suggestive things with the camera that aren't or that are symbolic of uh, something happening elsewhere. Well, I know um, we're kind of bleeding over into <laughs> minor a little bit, but there are some things I want to point out about him is that you know I'm not going to sit here and say this movie is better than the first one because it just isn't. But I do think that Steve Miner is ultimately a better film director than Seanus Cunningham. I feel like Seanus Cunningham is more of a producer playing director in that first one. But that Steve Miner, there's definitely some flourishes here that you say to yourself, oh, this guy's 
got like a good workman like ethic ethos. There's some uh, you know? there's some good periphery shots later on. My my favorite shot of the series is at the very end of the movie, um, and it has to do with the periphery. But I'll, I'll save that. Oh, uh, I also, you're talking I, about. I just want to talk. I, I yeah, and also the the look the the exchanges between the band like they're looking at each other they look so happy and like boys we've made it and i, I just love it it's like a, it's like a genuine scene <laughs> well, of joy in the middle of all this kind of similar to the diner scene from the first movie it, it actually has this like human moment that feels really real and that's all because of the the smoky boys or whatever they're called if if you look at their bio, they're still very proud that they appeared in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, as it was their only motion their motion pic their only motion picture. It should have been uh, more, in my opinion. But it's funny because you know you know how Mike I was Mike, surprised you know, that they did it. The first episode, Rothman kept saying how you know the Crystal Lake area, the, the town, looked so miserable, and everybody. And I, I kept being adamant about how no, well, you know, it's probably a Friday, and people are probably still at work, even though it's the summertime. People have to go to work no matter what, you know. Well, except for the the era that we're living in right now, of course, but, um, <laughs> but, um, then I thought to myself, well, it, this, yeah, this all makes sense because people are working hard. They're working hard for the weekend so they can go to the casino bar at the end of the night, have a great time. It looked like a great crowd. That's all I have to say about that. I would have gone there. It was packed in there. there. Are you kidding me? It looks great. Awesome. That place, uh, burnt down what? Two years after, yeah. uh, after they yeah. shot it. That's, that's sad when you hear stuff like that, but you know, it lives on forever in Paramount pictures, Friday 13th part two. So that's good. Yeah, and that bringing and it back real quick to the um, to the soundtrack. Uh, there's a great vinyl out there, and the cover for that vinyl is brilliant. <laughs> it's got Jason uh, with the pitchfork, like larger than life, like Godzilla size, like coming out of the lake. And then uh, underneath him is everyone gathered at the campfire, and in the uh, in the moonlight above him is kind of like this weird distorted version of his face. Uh, it's really surreal looking, but it's great. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was going to be Jason with the pitchfork playing it like an air guitar. <laughs> the soundtrack. Yeah, that, no, <laughs> like that's the, the cover the of the Boys Smokey Band. Boys Band's album. <laughs> I just imagine there's probably behind the scenes pics of the Smokey Boys Band, like, you know, just standing against the wall. And in the middle is, you know, Steve Dash or Warrington Gillette kind of hanging out like, yeah, hey, we got a picture of Jason here. <laughs> um, if anybody can find that picture out there, Please send it to us immediately. Uh, anything else about the music of the movie anybody wants to talk about? I'm going to take that deafening silence once again for... <laughs> <laughs> That's a negative. Uh, speaking of Warrington Gillette and or Steve Dash, I think it's time to move on to our next category. His name was Jason. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. All right. Well, you know, for decades, um, for decades, it was believed that Warrington Gillette, who gets the credit in the opening credits and at the very end, as Jason, um, was the only actor who played Jason throughout the entire movie. But the actor who should get as much credit as, you know, Kane Hodder or Richard Brooker or whoever else, C.J. Graham, should be Steve Dash because Steve Dash is Jason when you ever you see him wearing the hood. The only time you see Warrington Gillette, or I'm pretty sure the only time you see him is when he bursts through the window and attacks Jenny at the very end. I I, I I'll confirm that, and uh, I think that's the only time you act, he actually played Jason. It's, in isn't that movie. crazy? And that's crazy. Yeah. because like in, even in the Crystal Lake memories, um, uh, Lauren Murray Taylor who played Vicky. She was like, oh, Warrington was my Jason. But the only time she interacted with Jason was when he has the pillowcase on. 
in the sequence where he attacks her with the the machete in the room. I so think there's uh, a scene very where... interesting. I mean, unless they were just really good friends. I don't know. I think there's a scene but I also think the knife. I was going to say that it. might be Warrington Gillette when he's walking towards her or the. Uh... Well, yeah, because I think the, the deal was that uh, Warrington Gillette couldn't do a lot of the heavy duty stunt work. So that probably involved any of the running or chasing. But they may have put him in the pillowcase for like because all he does that he pops up out of the bed and then well, walks with the knife. You, I can understand, and I would definitely, honestly, if I was out there, I would have been like, "Yeah, let's get Dash in here to do all this." Because you try running around the woods, uh, uneven ground, with a bag on your head with one eye hole, and make that and and not <laughs> con- keep falling every two seconds. Well, I got like, news for you. You know who's able to do that? Steve Dash. No, I know. That's Gillette. what I'm saying. Got to get Dash in that's there. That's because uh, Steve da- Steve Dash was carrying Warrington Gillette's load. He was his own Cliff Booth. That's, that's a good. That's actually a really that's good. Very, that's a great. But, yeah. yeah. Listen, I, I say all that to say this. There's a great story I read. Uh, Steve Dash, who passed away sadly about a year ago. Uh, there is a mini documentary on him on YouTube. You should seek it out. He actually was a pretty good like, you know, character actor. He would pop up in TV shows. He's nothing like you think. He's like this heavy New York accent kind of. You know, I, I don't know. I think Daskowitz is his actual uh, birth name. But um, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to give you a bit of acting here when I regale this tale that he told Dread Central back in 2006. So please bear with me. Um, you know, take it back. I'm not going to do the New York accent because it's way too long. So let me just read, <laughs> let me just read it to you. <laughs> I don't want to offend any Jersey boys. or I don't want to offend Dan, especially. So. Yeah, me, me, uh, me my... Like Jersey draw. <laughs> All right, so here's this no joke. This is a this is a, a story that Steve Dash told about a confrontation he had with Warrington Gillette. <laughs> okay, Warrington and I had a conversation yesterday. As a matter of fact, he signed a picture for a lady that was actually of me coming through the bathroom window at Amy, uh, Amy Steele, who played Jenny. The lady said to me that she had a picture of him going through the window, and I asked if I could see it. She showed it to me, and it was my picture. So I went over to Warrington and I confronted him. I basically said. Who the hell are you to steal my thunder and sign a picture of me with your name? And he said, well, I didn't know that was you. Look, I'm only here for the fun of it. I said, no, let's get this shit stopped right now. Don't ever say you did something of mine. You did nothing in that movie. I'll tell you exactly what you did if you don't remember. You did one scene in the movie where you went through the window and that was it. Period. You got it? That is the only scene you ever did. You want to show a picture of you in the makeup? Fine. Do it. You want to show a picture of you going through the window with Amy? Fine. Do it. But don't show my pictures and sign your name on my pictures ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I love. I, I I think he was oh, a little upset. Yeah, of course he was. Because for decades, I, it sounds like credit. it. <laughs> in the, Wait, in the, in the like closing it... credits, he gets the credit of uh, I think Jason's stunt double, but like that's that's like way down the line. You know? I, I feel like at but these you know, con- conventions, yes. there's because you always see the oh, we're gonna get all the Michael Myers, you know, all on stage together. We're gonna get all the Jasons on stage together. And for the most part, they all seem to have this kind of camaraderie. But I bet you there is there are lots of rivalries and and sort of grudges like the ones you just outlined, uh, Justin. That would make a good movie. Like have all the guys who played uh, a figure in a horror franchise or something. And something else in that interview, um, he also claims that Warrington Gillette told him that he he got into a really bad skiing accident after the movie, and he, and he doesn't remember anything about the movie. And so the Dread Central person asked Steve Dash, "Do you believe that?" And Steve Dash goes, "I was a cop." I can suss out bullshit when I hear it. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> you know, cool. Steve Dash was hey. also a, a cop before he was an actor. So, yes, it sounds like Dash. And is there's great. a what, 
And there's two more credits for Jason in the movie, right? There's um, a young lady played his Correct. legs in That's the beginning right. of the film, I believe. That's right. Nope. There's the, uh, the, I think it's the, the costume only designer. Woman to play Jason. I can. Yes. Wait, yeah. who's the other one? And then um, um, there's one. There's a credit under the name Prowler. Mm. Um, and that is who kills Adrian King in ah. the beginning. Oh, that's a different person. Huh? Is it the person who played the Prowler in, <laughs> in Joseph in Zito's The Prowler? I don't believe so. I think it was one of the, just another, uh, you know, one of the behind the scenes guys. I'm looking through this book and I cannot find the. Uh, I it's probably some, it'll probably say Michael Keaton. <laughs> it was like this early. <laughs> before his breakout <laughs> role. Um, let's, so we, we got some of the behind the scenes about who the hell played Jason and who didn't, but we should talk about this iteration of Jason because let's have this conversation. Can we think of any other franchise, not just horror, but any other franchise period, where like the most important piece of iconography doesn't happen until a sequel, let alone a second sequel? Like think about it, when we think about Jason, even growing up, like we talked about in the playgrounds and everything, you think about that hockey mask. That's the first thing you think about when you think about a Friday the 13th movie. And that doesn't show up for, you know, two years after the original or so. It's it's nuts. I, I don't I can't think of any other uh, series that that has a situation like that. Um, it, it almost reinvents itself three times and then and still maintains the same audience. And then and then it's 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 amazing to me that Ford didn't do the same thing where it was like a different mask or a different incarnation. I kind of wish we had seen that. I think it would have been really fun to see, like, how far can you go? Like, it, it's Jason isn't the mask. It's what, like, it, he embodies whatever he takes on kind of deal. But it, it is kind of crazy to me that, that these three films, not to jump too far ahead, uh, are, are, very, are very different in terms of who the killer is and, uh, and then also just the look, you know? Um, because you know it's funny because you always hear, especially in this movie, you know the the legend of Jason, and who he is, and that he's like kind of like this 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 mongoloid that's been living in the woods or whatever. And like they 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 are always like talking about how like gross he might look. And I know that they were saying that when they put the pillowcase over his head, or the the canvas bag or whatever, that it was kind of left up to the audience's imagination, like what's under there, which is great because, you know, less is always more. And that's why I think that reveal works so well at the end, even though you already know what Jason might look like from the end of the first one. That's just a dream. Um, to, I was going to say to piggyback on what you were saying about uh, the mongoloid, Steve Miner upon the, the release of Friday, or in some interview I read was like, you know, we didn't want to use the term mongoloid because that's offensive and I don't want to offend anybody. So we just referred to him as a frightened retard. Oh, well in, done. In that, sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like 1981 if there ever Yikes. was a time, you know? <laughs> well, because the thing is this movie... But I will say... Oh, go ahead, Mac. Oh no! I'm just gonna. I was just gonna say that I, I think it's pretty amazing that this is this franchise survived like three uh, three sort of reinventions of a sort. I mean, I guess the hockey mask isn't necessarily a reinvention, but that could have easily been like lame and not have worked. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it just it just something about it just just worked. I don't know. It's crazy. Well, and because the thing is, future entries actually did better at the box office because the first movie. You know, it cost half a million to make, you know, back in that time. It's you know probably more now. I, I know it's more now. But it made, you know, 40 million domestic. This one cost twice as much. And you could say it only made $21 million. But guess what? That's still like 20 times the budget. So it was still a success. You know, it wasn't like it was some forgotten movie. 
and it was totally rebooted by the third one. And that's why we that's why we know the yeah, hockey. It's kind of wild you know that I mean? this. It's kind of wild that this one's considered a disappointment. Yeah, I know. I, but I think again, we'll talk about it later. But I think over the years, people are looking back a lot more kindly because of uh, things on the periphery when it comes to the movie too. Like when it comes to certain characters that we see in the movie and certain scenes that we see in the movie. Um, but I, I think something harkening back to the first one where we talked about how that first one is still pretty scary. I still think this movie is pretty scary, especially if I had never seen it before, you know, compared to the, to the future more, we're all having a good time. We're all kind of in on the joke. We're in it with Jason. You know what I mean? Dan? Yeah. I, I, I used the word both last night and when we were talking about the first one earlier today, to, like I just described, I think of these first two films as being pretty sober, even though we see some funnier, jokier characters in this one, it's not so over the top. Honestly, you don't even get anything as over the top as someone like Shelley in the third movie. Um, not that I, and I, you know, the third movie is fun in its own right. But th- this to me just feels kind of like a good, solid slasher movie, um, yeah. especially given Jason what he's wearing with the um, the pillowcase. Which I, I, did they take that from the town that dreaded sundown or feared sundown or whatever it is? Has that been confirmed, or is that just like they look kind of similar? It has to be. Right, yeah, and so yeah, I, and yeah. so even just the the iconography they're playing with is a little less over the top and and playful than something like a hockey mask. So, yeah, I, th- I think these two movies, especially when taken together, they just to me feel and and because we're not getting the repeat the same killer, there's also I hate, this is going to be a silly word to use, but there's just a sense of realism to it a little bit that I think later movies don't have. Like it, it does not seem like such a stretch that. Um, these people would be going to a summer, uh, uh, a training camp five years after something else happened down the road. You know what I mean? Like, like, so there's like a lack of stupidity to this movie that I think ages really well. And then just the way Jason moves too. I, I like it when he's not the big hulking creature. He's just a dude with a mask on his face. So yeah, yeah he's still, I, I, he's I, still, uh, he's still running Jason at this point. He, yeah. He, he and, will and, be for a few and more also, movies. also too, I mean, I, I know they get really fuzzy with, Oh, um, yeah, did did he escape drowning and go and live in the woods? Like, how how exactly did all that happen? But so say 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 he did. <laughs> say I guess as a kid he like didn't drown. He just swam into the woods and hid away for all that time. I buy that he would serve. I buy that he would survive that. And like we're not getting into like oh this thing can't be killed yet. You know what I mean? So that also lends a sense of well here because Ginny kind of gives us a possible history at the in the bar scene. Um, yeah, she's talking yeah. to Paul and, and Ted. She says that he, well, let's imagine that he's he's still, despite being an adult, he's still childlike, um, or as, as um, eloquently as I forgot who it was that said it, uh, retarded, <laughs> whoever it said it, um, and then witnesses his mother's death, and that affects yeah. him in some way. I mean, but, the thing that I always run into is like is what I just said about okay, well, did he did he go under the water? And he just like swam to the banks and then never talked to his mother again. Like for me, it's not even the oh did they never like they never went and looked for <laughs> yeah, the exactly. body. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's not like the oh did he or didn't he drown. It's more like okay, well if he didn't drown, then why did he rough into the woods by himself and not not like talk to his mom again? I mean, I guess that's fine. I think if he's but I think if he's uh, mentally disabled, my my working theory that I've been working on for almost thirty Gerber- years. Li- you read my dissertation, Gerber-Lytics. my Gerberlytics. I think that he <laughs> probably ended up not drowning and then finding himself on the other end or some somehow finding himself washed ashore at the other end of the lake and just got like lost in the woods and became a mythic figure. You know what I mean? And just figured that like that's that. it. Yeah, I like that. Because he wouldn't have the I wherewithal also... to like look, to keep looking for his mother. Maybe he just got tired and said, I can't find her. And that was it, you know? Part of me <laughs> feels like 
you know, here's a kid that's that looks different, probably was persecuted by these kids. Maybe he even faked his death and went off to the woods because and just was like, I don't even want to go back. And, you know, who knows? Maybe his mother was crazy before as well. And just he didn't want to be a part <laughs> of her life. But I also thought that it was interesting when Jenny's giving that monologue at the bar um, early on, Paul drops the, the the fact that she's studying to be a child psychologist. So it kind of makes sense that she's been trying to work this out, you know, this in this legend about Jason and his relationship with his mother and the whole idea of him out there crying, crying for her resurrection, which I kind of love uh, her dropping that in the in the bar because it makes it a lot more believable when she puts the sweater on later on and tries to like talk to him in the way she does because of her background, um, which is like they thought way too much about this for a slasher film, which is why it's so grounded. I feel and actually works uh, upon rewatches. But um, yeah, grounded. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that the idea they don't ever explain it. It's okay. I mean, it is just like a crazy slasher flick at the end of the day. But I do like the idea that it is it is more um, there are sequences when like Jason is is like kicked in the balls, you know, by Jenny at one point and and where it doesn't work with Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, when Nancy's attacking Freddy at the end of that movie, I think some it's a little hard to swallow because it's like, oh, now he's not scary. I still feel like it works in this movie because Jason is is a is a man trying to kill her. He's not like a fictional character. Um He's not a, a, a thing of dreams, you know what I mean? It's an actual person, and yeah. like he's going to keep coming, even though he's he is fallible. You know, he can be you know hurt. Um, I think that that's what's also more frightening, uh, and that's what makes Mrs. Voorhees so frightening is that, that these are just real people, and they're just crazy, and they have this adrenaline, and will keep coming no matter what happens to them. Um, but yeah, I think this is grounded and I, I, I really love this version of Jason. Mac, you mentioned, uh, Mrs. Voorhees. We have to mention the fact that Betsy Palmer returned, returned for the Jason hallucinations. And, um, that's true. That's true. I can't believe they it's got so it. so great. Cause she had, she was so disappointed with, she did not, like we talked about, I think the first episode, she was not proud at all of being in Friday 13th. It took her a long time to come around and then she became a, a convention staple before she, she passed away a few years ago. But uh, I love the I fact that they got her that back. Probably, I think that probably speaks leagues to, I think, you know, Minor or whoever called her up was clearly, you know, she probably had a good relationship with them in order for her to be like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Um, I'm sure she got sure some de- a, a decent paycheck, paycheck you know too. I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you guys but, think but it's, that? Uh, I think it's great. Do you guys think, and this is something that I, I think because I've, it happens in almost all of the movies from here on out. Do you guys think we need the flashback in the beginning? Like seeing the last five, man, they start to, it, it oh, start no, driving yeah. crazy after a while. It like, was, it was, it, it was bordering on Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 level oh, yeah. of rehash. Well, you know what it was, uh, Dan? It was, um, I, I, I got my notes here. I said, ah, pat out the runtime with a nice five minute flashback dream sequence. <laughs> yeah. like, they, like Paramount was like, Oh, 82 minutes? No, 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 no. This has got to be 87 minutes. We're going to get the people in the seats. So I understand understand why they did it because I I think it does go on a little too long, but I think if you're looking at it like, okay, everyone knows Miss Voorhees died with her head being chopped off. So who the hell is this person supposed to be coming in here? I think they really felt like they had to kind of over over set up that so that the the head in the fridge is effective 
and that you kind of get the feeling that maybe this is supposed to be Jason. I mean, I think they overdo it. I think it's a little too long, but mm-hmm. I do think that it's necessary. Well, and, and I think too because well, don't forget it's the it's the pre VHS era, so there were people that maybe didn't see Friday yeah, the Thirteenth in its original run who were going to go see it. Well, there. think about yeah. this yeah, too, everybody. Totally. Think about this. This is also before sequelitis really kicked in in the eighties. There really yeah. were not a lot of part twos out there, so I think they were still trying to figure out well. Are people just going to go see this because it's a movie? Or do they feel like they have to see the first one? And if not, you know, how do we kind of coddle to the fact that they haven't seen the first one? So I kind of kept that in mind, you know, when I when I watched this for the first well, time. I think too, it's child. funny because <laughs> when they start doing it, in, you know, the third movie and the fourth, like, when they start doing it, like every single movie, it's always funny to me because it happens before the credits, and then the title always happens on the final shot of the last movie, which feels hilarious to me because it's it's like putting a button on it, like, oh, this is the big shocker. I'm like, this isn't a shocker. This is literally what we already saw last. So it, it just cracks me up. And I think because, especially with this one, um, the opening sequence in itself is already kind of a prologue. The non-dream stuff feels like a prologue, right? Like it's it's sort of killing the last... And so I think because it's like a prologue on top of a prologue, it just it, it feels a bit much. That that being said, I really I really like the non-dream stuff. Um, that The whole opening sequence is actually pretty terrifying to me. And the fact that we're seeing Jason in the suburbs, there's something really disturbing about I that. I agree. And you know what, Dan? What a transition you have set up for me. Because oh, it, is, it, is, uh, uh, so, so. it is time to move on to our next section a category we call Dead Fucks. I'm a messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. cursed. Okay, so uh, surprise, surprise. This is where we, we talk about all the dead fucks from Friday the 13th Part 2, namely most of the cast. We'll talk about some people who didn't die. Quite a lot of them did not die, actually, in this movie. But let's, let's lead off talking about Alice, played by Adrian King, who does return. Uh, for that 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 prologue, the five minute dream sequence, which you see her in bed, obviously upset, and then uh, sadly she does get the the ice pick to the head after discovering the rotting head of Mrs. Voorhees in the fridge. What do we think? So, Dan, you you kind of hinted that you 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 enjoy this sequence as a suspenseful thing for the most part once we get past the dream. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love that. Once again, I think it's the only time we really. I mean, I guess in. I guess in Frey versus Jason, you see Jason in the suburbs, but for the most part, it's seeing him out of his element, even though we don't know it's him yet. And just, it, it establishes the sense of danger that this isn't a thing that just happens at Crystal Lake. I know a lot of people take issue with her getting killed since she's the final girl from the first one. I think the reason it doesn't bother me in the same way that it does when Laurie Strode gets killed in the now, the now um, vaporized Halloween resurrection is because for me, she's just, not as memorable as a, of a character. I don't dislike her by any means, but she's kind of a bl- more of a blank slate, I think, than someone like Laurie. So I'm not like, oh my god, you're killing this this iconic character. And and I just I think the reveal of the the head in the fridge, like Mac was saying, just establishing, oh shit, no, this isn't. We're, we are not bringing back Mrs. Voorhees. Just establishing that, and then the, just the death itself is is super creepy. And I think it's because it, it doesn't really involve a jump scare. It's all it's all noises in the background, and then almost like a a matter of fact type killing. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that sequence, but what about you guys? Name, namely, do you, do you, are you for or against them killing the protagonist from the first movie? I personally, when I first saw this, I think I was a little bummed because I liked Alice, but at the same time, I really appreciate any film that's going to try their hand at building a continuity. And even though they jump technically five years after this, I like that. It just makes that scene when Paul's at the campfire saying that, 
you know, the, the, the girl that survived disappeared two months later. They don't know what, what, they don't know what happened to her. So like their, her family doesn't know if she's alive or dead, but we know that she's dead. <laughs> she got to, you know, but like, I, I love that little, little bit. I think that, you know, I was, I was a little bummed that they, they killed her off, but, uh, you know, the, the cast in this one, just like the cast in the first, I feel, feels, it still feels um, pretty grounded, even though there are, the archetypes are there again, like you have the funny guy, and you have like, you know, the, 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 the couple couples, and you know, it, it's, it's a little bit like, okay, here's the recipe, and they're going to continue this as we move forward, but the, even because of all the groundedness in this film, you're still kind of like rooting for all of these guys, you, you, there's no one there, except for maybe, uh, What's his name? Was it uh, Scott? Who, who's the Who's the total creeper? Oh yeah, we'll talk about him later on. We'll yeah, Scott. But ultimately, <laughs> I feel like um, you still you still are rooting for these people, and um, so it made Alice's death a little bit easier to swallow um, when you have uh, a, a cast such as this. Mike V. Um, I it never bothered me because it felt like when I was watching these movies for the first time, that's just what happened. Whoever survived the the movie before got killed in the the next one. It happened in Elm Street 4. Um, I'm sure I can think of countless other sequels where that happened as well. So I I, just, I never gave it much of a thought. But I did always appreciate that uh, it established Jason as being pretty savvy that he took the uh, he took the tea kettle off of the uh, yes. stove. Which is also a great what? beat, I think, leading into the opening credit. I was gonna say, Justin, that that that's that's one of the two uh, Criterion covers uh, that I have on there. <laughs> I love Criterion covers because they always pick the most obscure scenes from a movie, and so yeah, that that's a go back. Seeing like the 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 gross broken thumbnail lifting up the uh, the tea kettle and like the slash of the side saying Criterion yeah. Collection. <laughs> um, no, I agree. I think you're supposed to be bummed out, but that, that she's dead. I think that's an effective thing not to use a character. No, I, I apologize. No, you should use you should use characters in movies to manipulate you to, to feel something, and I think it also sets a precedent that nobody is safe in these movies, which I appreciated a lot. You know, I mean, just because these people survived before does not give them a pass for the rest of their existence in the franchise. Um, what's interesting about that scene? I have a couple notes I'd like to give Alice years after she passed away. If I watched it again, as somebody who seems to be pretty paranoid and freaked out. She doesn't lock her front door. Did you notice that? When she wakes up, she goes downstairs. No. <laughs> she, she puts the lock on the door at that point. And, um, and that's after the mysterious phone call, by the way. And her kitchen window was also just left open. <laughs> like, I guess she's not that paranoid. We just, I don't know. That, that really stuck out to me this time as, a, as, as pretty funny. Ah, Detective Gerber on, on the prowl. I'm going to find Jason if it's the last thing I do. Something else at the very on that note, though, like I don't, and I think this is, uh, I mean, like you said this before, sequelitis uh, came around. If you're looking at this movie, like why would she be uh, that terrified? She knows that who tried to kill the person who tried to kill her that is, is true. dead. That is true, and there's never even uh, a notion of anything supernatural. And Victor Miller will attest. The defense to that. rests, I think, on that point. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Also, did you know at the very end when Jenny? goes into Jason's shack. I'm pretty sure the skeleton is Alice, right? Because I think the skeleton's got an ice pick in its head. I never noticed that, but I assumed that he brought yeah. the body back there for sure. Pretty... Oh, I did not notice that. I'll have to go back and watch that. Yeah, pretty pretty creepy stuff. Something else, there's there's some conflicting information about how much Adrian King knew going into this. She claimed she did not know she was going to get killed when she showed up on set. 
Now, I refute that. I, I don't understand uh, don't how you no can, uh, Paramount Pictures is just going to have somebody show up and then tell them, oh, by the way, you're not going to be in any more of this than the first scene. Now, did she assume that she was just going to be well, in one scene and then say something and then that was it? Like, I don't understand how there can be miscommunication you know, there. I watched it again, the, the behind the scenes this morning, and she said that when she was on set, now she might have known that she was only going to be there for a day, but here's the thing. It, she she might have known that, but she, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be killed. Maybe she just thought like there was going to be a flashback sequence or a flash forward or something. I don't know where she's alive and blah, 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 leaving her character open-ended or something. But she says that a lot of it was kind of like improv and that they kind of just like went scene by scene with her until that moment where they like, get her and that she didn't have a script before and i know with a lot of movies you don't get a script until you're there and especially back then i'm sure there was like no communication so i kind of believe it but at the same time i i i don't know how much i believe that she thought that she was not going to get killed if you're only on set for a day and you're the remaining survivor of the last film of a slasher series I think you got to believe that you're probably going to get got. <laughs> That's what I feel like. <laughs> well, because, I mean, I, I believe that there was no strip because you want to talk about rushed production. I think the first one came out in May, and the second movie had wrapped six months after the first one came out. So, I mean, they were really, uh, even though it didn't come out for another year, they really wrapped it up pretty quick. Um, no shots at Adrian King, and once again, we, we love Alice, but I just thought that was a kind of funny, conflicting story there. But let's move on to our next character. Uh, I think this is my favorite, quote-unquote, final girl of the series, and that would be Jenny, played by Amy Steele. Mac, I think Mac had mentioned, or somebody mentioned that she studied child psychology going into the camp. She's a very resourceful character. She's, she's, a, she's a leader. She's the one that leads the counselors on the jog. We see her using a chainsaw early on. You know, she's not just, uh, I think people unfairly stereotype this, the final girl as, as kind of this virginal weak person who doesn't get strong until the end. I think she's, she shows that she's strong throughout the entire movie. Um, I, uh, I like this. I, I love this character. I think that Amy still gives a genuinely good performance. And I'd seen her in a few things after this. I remember she was on a, a quantum leap episode years later and she was very good in it. So uh, I think she's a, she's a good yeah. actor. What, 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 uh, what do you think? I love quantum leap. Uh, Mike Vanderbilt, what do you think about Amy Steele in this movie? I think she's great. Uh, I, I don't know if, I, I adore her the way it seems a lot of the, the fan base seems to. Um, and I can't put my finger on why, but she's definitely one of the more, uh, like you said, more. She has a real agency yes. to her as as a final girl in this series. Um, yeah, no, she's cool. <laughs> she's cool. Mac? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I love I love her. And I think part of it for me is like she – gets carted away in the ambulance at the end and, and we don't know what happens to her. Yeah. Um, and that's so I kind of love that. She's like, it's one of those things where you're always like, ah, let's get all the final girls back to do, <laughs> to do something, you know? But, um, but yeah, no, I love Jenny. She's a, a really strong character. The, the only moment that you're just like, what are you doing is when, <laughs> is when she takes the chainsaw to Jason and, uh, cuts his hand, uh, uh, I think he, his hand gets like kind of like blown up by the chainsaw and then he falls over and instead of taking the chainsaw and driving it through his body, she just <laughs> leaves the room. Um, now again, we've we had this conversation last time too. You don't know what you would do in that situation. If you're not a cold blooded killer right <laughs> yeah, off the gate, exactly. maybe you don't have it in you to try to do something like that after you've disabled the person. 
But I do feel like that's the only moment where you're like, oh, what are you doing? Like, just kill him. Kill him right there. It's However, definitely the uh, uh, it's the Lori drops the knife in Halloween moment. Yes. Just, and there's something it. like that. And yeah, there's something like that in, in everyone. But I, I think that she's a really strong character and a very pretty fleshed out character over the course of this film. I do think it's funny that her and uh, she kind of has the same relationship with uh, Paul as uh, a little bit, a, a better relationship, I guess, that uh, Alice and Steve have in the first film. Where it's like the you know the, the the older camp counselor, the head of the camp is kind of like seeing one of the counselors and shouldn't be, um, but I do, but but I think that's a strong choice, and the way that her interplay is with Paul is really cool because you know right out the gate she's like, she's she's kind of like wearing the pants in this relationship, you know, like I love that moment she just like kisses him and she's like that's bullshit you know <laughs> whatever it is like in the you know when he first grabs you know I I, I she's like right out the gate a really cool character and I. I, uh, I have a soft spot for Jenny. Dan Caffrey. Yeah, and, and it's nothing. It's not even because of anything plot-specific. She just has an attitude that I think is refreshing for a final girl. She's not like a a, a wallflower like Lori. I mean, look, Lori Schroeder is still my, fav- my favorite final girl of any of these series. But but um, do you know what I mean, though? You know, once again, she's not as quite, quite a, as much of a blank slate as Alice is. She's, just, she's got some teeth to her. And because she didn't come back for the next film... I do like that her fate is kind of left com- completely open. It might be, weren't, am I making it up that they were going to try to bring her back for yeah. even, even like a later entry in the series? Also? I think the next one they were going to try to bring her back and then maybe later on too, but I mean, it makes sense, you know? Uh, part part three, the I uh, read that she was going to be in a mental institution and Jason was going to track her down there and kill all the patients or in a hospital. I like the open ended fate much better than that because I. I, I We'll talk about part three later on, too. But what I also like about this character is, even though she's extremely, you know, again, we've talked about this. We've said ad nauseum. Almost as ad nauseum as people refer to strong women characters as badass, which is just overdone at this point. But she, but I love the fact that she's resourceful. She's strong. She's a good leader. But she's still terrified that there's a killer who's killed everybody she knows at this camp. You know what I mean? There's never a moment of, of I wouldn't believe if she was just walking around like, I got this, you know, and was like swinging the machete around. I like the fact that she's absolutely terrified despite everything else, because guess what? Everybody would be. Yeah. And it ebbs and flows. I mean, there, and I, I wrote a, a lot down here and I guess this is the time to talk about it because I don't know where else we would put it. But, um, you know, it, that first scene when she's in the room with Paul and you think she's like, someone's in the room. Love it. And then you just kind of see in the dark Jason walking towards Paul. That's a great shot. But the way that she's just kind of saying Paul over and over again and not trying to intercede, I, I, you know, she's like processing what's going on. And again, I say this, this is the same thing. Like when something happens or someone's being attacked, like you, you, you think you would react immediately, but you don't. You kind of like are just bewildered by what's going on. And it takes her a while to react. There's also that scene where she's under the bed with the rat comes. And then, you know, there's a lot, I guess there's some debate on to, as to whether the piss is coming from her or the rat. But I, uh, I, believe, I always I thought believe, it was her because I'll tell you right now, if I was in that situation, I would have pissed I'm pretty sure well, the volume of urine was coming from a human being. <laughs> Well, and that's why I mean, I think that it's it's like this goes back to the groundedness of this. Like, it doesn't matter how cool you are, how how much your adrenaline's going. Like, she's so human. You know, she pisses herself under the bed, but then she's still like 
you know, like it's it's a very human and very real thing that we're seeing happening. Like just like the constant ebb and flow of like the strong moments to like the 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 fight or flight stuff. You know what I mean? Well, I think um, her reaction shots are are just totally believable. Like when she's in the car and the pitchfork comes through the, the roof, it just you just oh, you yeah. believe it's happening. I'll say that as opposed to some other uh, future <laughs> cast members in future movies, I could say that. And but again, at the very end, she still has the wherewithal to put a plan together, and she figures, okay, let's see if my theory about Jason is right, and puts on the sweater and does the whole manipulation on him. And uh, you can still see she's frightened, but she's still trying to get the job done. And yeah, I, I think she's great in this movie. And the open-endedness just kind of adds to the whole creepy nature of of the movie. But we mentioned them earlier. We should talk about them. John Fury as Paul. This is important. Um, do we think Paul lives or dies? Paul's dead. Okay, so Mike Vanderbilt says Paul is dead. Dan? Wait, Paul... Oh, be, oh, because of the ending. Sorry, I was yeah. confusing Ted and Paul for a second. Oh, no. I'm like, no, Ted, Ted lives. Um, no, um... Oh, man. And then they never say anything about it in the sequels, do they? Um... Well, we'll talk no. about that next episode. I think with that, look, here's the thing. If Alice is dead, then Paul's dead. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, why would he get to live just because we don't, we don't hear anything more about him? Like, do you know oh, what you I mean? mean if that, Jenny yeah, is, you mean dead. if Jenny is, if Jenny is alive. Well, no, I'm saying, no, I, I guess I'm just saying like, this is not a series that, um, honors ambiguity. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think, for, so I think for me, I'm just, my gut reaction is that Paul is dead. Mac? So it, it it relies on a few things, which I think is really muddy. The sequence where Jason jumps through the window, if that's supposed to be a dream, because like what happens after that, you know, because it just cuts to her in the bed being taken away. If Paul right. survived and saved Jason, then that makes sense why maybe, or maybe they both died uh, <laughs> and then she was left alive it's really confusing you're, you're like where does the dream start because paul shows up in the cabin uh in the shed and attacks jason and then they they both get away so it's like where does the dream start in order for her to be the only survivor is very confusing but i like i like the confusion because it, it just leaves it up to your own imagination and i think that's always more satisfying to an in a, to an extent yeah because if you look and at I, there's I, other ways you could always say well maybe when when jenny wakes up and asks where paul is she's kind of out of it like she's been drugged up maybe paul is off screen saying to her while she's sleeping i'll see you at the hospital like we don't know who knows who knows yeah. Here, here's a question too because and we know in part 3 jason looks different than he does in this movie with his mask off even though that it's, it's pretty close in proximity for the timeline. I know a lot of people have thought that part two is all a dream at a certain point from the unmasking. Do you know what I mean? So would, would that yeah. adjust? Would that have any effect on like when we think the dream starts and stops and if, if that informs well, whether Paul's dead or not? There, Dan's a good question. I think it all goes back to something else, actually. Do you believe that Muffin died? The, the dog. Yeah, that was something I noticed too now. Because yeah. two things, two things. We yeah. see, so obviously earlier on we see Jeff and Sandra when they go into the blocked off Camp Crystal Lake, they see a dog that looks like it's the same breed as Muffin, right? It's got the same jaw and everything else. Pretty graphic scene, by the way. <laughs> so, and Jenny has no idea about that. They do not tell anybody about that. 
So it just seems so random that Jenny, that the dog would randomly show up at the site if the dog wasn't just already alive, right? Or was it dead? That's the thing. That's the question. Is the muffin alive or dead? That's the yeah, great because question. if I, I would like to think Muffin is alive, but if we're going off of the dream logic that the dream started before that, then it could be that she's dead. Although I've also read interviews where guys, several of the actors who play Jason, they they don't think Jason would kill a dog. They feel like he he he's, has too much sympathy <laughs> for them and and for the underdog. So I, I got I some bad news for those. Did those people see Friday Thirteenth the Final Chapter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We'll save it for that. I got another one too. I think that there is a some deleted um, pictures I just found of them taking Muffin away in a hospital bed as well. <laughs> <laughs> like the same size bed that they take Jenny away with. <laughs> Well, it's a good question. I do love that, though. Question. When I do love that um, the muffin, whether she's alive or not, that that dream sequence. Uh, if we're saying it's a dream sequence, when uh, when she's calling out for muffin and and, and Jason jumps through the the window. Uh, I know that in the, even in the interviews, uh, Amy Steele was talking about how like she she really hated that sequence because it was truly like I don't think they really ever knew when he was going to do it, and I think that that's that's great and the reaction and even though. I think her reaction is very real, but I don't think you see Paul's reaction. I think that would have been maybe because he sees it coming. I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of mystery behind the end of this film, but I like it. I dig it. I dig it. Hey, we're still talking about that moment for like five minutes, forty years later. So pretty good job, intentional or, or otherwise. It it's it's one of my favorite uh, final scares of a uh, Friday the yeah. 13th. Even though you know it's probably coming, right? You know it's coming, but it still works. It's like it's like. It's like Carrie in that same sense in the first one, like we talked about in the first episode, where you're you're waiting for it, and it's it'll still get you. Agreed, agreed. And I, I also want to say a couple of things about Paul and Jenny. They both have got a great sense of humor. I love when the the officer is upset that Paul is not going to to you know reprimand Jeff and Sandra for sneaking over to Camp Crystal Lake, and he just goes, uh, "Jenny, uh, no seconds on dessert for Jeff and Sandra tonight." Good bit. You know, you know what? Good, though, bit, good piece of business. Good piece of business. Unnecessarily rude. Unnecessarily rude to uh the sheriff i mean we're talking about an area where five years ago somebody you know murdered a whole uh slew of camp counselors but that like, person got their head chopped off you he, know what i mean that person's dead he he is in the right to be a little bit uh you know on edge about him setting up camp uh just a couple to miles be fair, away. to uh, be fair on, on your point mike the cop was right unfortunately he did not live <laughs> very long to, to realize how right <laughs> you that know was. justin before we hop to the sheriff, uh, Paul's last name is Holt. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> I think I'm thinking about Steve Holt. With, because I'm thinking of Rings with Holt Anthony. <laughs> oh, God. The character Holt Anthony from the third Rings movie. Um, terrific stuff. Before we get to Mac, you're jumping the gun, though. We can't talk about uh, Deputy Winslow just yet. We've got to talk about uh, Returning Champion. Uh, if anybody listened to our, oh, yeah. or watched our Twitch feed, though, Somebody on this podcast is not a big fan of this character, um, and that character is Crazy Ralph, played by Walt Gorney. Ugh. Dan Caffrey, you were not in the first episode. You're not a big fan of this character. I well, all right, it's a couple things. I don't, I don't like that after he gets he gets thankfully killed in this one that we get another crazy old hermit guy. I feel like every movie they have to do some kind of thing, and I think he's just annoying. Like I mean, I guess he's a good guy in a sense because he's trying to warn everyone. But man, I if I were these campers, I would hate this guy. Like get of course. the fuck out of here, Ralph. Get all, I mean, which I guess they do, but he just seemed, and, and it, it seems weird to me that he just comes back in this one just to get 
garroted or garroted or however you want to say it. I mean, he's fine, I guess. He just, I, <laughs> maybe I just don't like eccentric old people. They just annoy me, I guess. You don't have, don't yeah, <laughs> you don't suffer <laughs> yeah. fools, as it were. Yeah, <laughs> just like, ah, like the kooky old person, just not, not, not my favorite archetype in a, in a horror movie. So yeah, I'm not, I, and I guess I feel like he gets associated with the series in this as being this iconic part of it. I'm like, he's just this annoying old guy who gets killed in the second movie. What's the big, <laughs> what's the big deal? So I'm, I'm anti-Ralph. I'm sure the guy who plays him is very nice, and I wish him the best. But, well, he, uh, he passed away about 10 years ago, so... Oh, that, that, <laughs> that, is, that is sad. That, that is sad. <laughs> that is sad. Um, I mean, I, I actually have no problem with his performance. It's just that archetype is just... He just he just bugs me. He And I know he's there to be a red herring in the first movie, but why bring him back? We don't need to bring him back. I mean, I guess they bring him back to kill him, which is... Well, I think it's best. interesting because... And still, still, still wearing the same shit he was wearing five years ago, too. I, you know, but I do buy that. Though, that tracks. That tracks. Crazy. I will say something interesting about his death, though, is that he, you feel like just like the first one, this is all going to take place on the same night. Not so. He's actually Night One's sole casualty. Oh, that's right, because everything else is the next day, right? Yeah, everything else is the next day. We don't have to talk about Crazy Ralph too much. We talked about him in the last episode, but you mentioned it. Um, maybe there's some shaming going on here because he's kind of peeking in. He's, he's, he's a little bit of a peeping Tom watching Ginny and Paul, and then he gets uh, killed for his efforts. So uh, maybe he's there's some perfect. commentary. He's He's a, he's a perv. He's an old pervert. Um, let's move on to our next character, who is ultimately the Ned character, who is too close to comfort, named Ted, <laughs> which literally rhymes Ted. with Ned, played by Stu Charno, who lives. I asked this question in the first episode about the kind of comic character. Do we find Ted to be funny? Mike Vanderbilt. Yes, I think I, I think Ted is funnier. I think he's up there with that. I think Ted's real funny. I think he's charming. Um, I don't think he'd be annoying to hang out hang out with. Like he's not like he's not like theater kid funny where he's always trying to be the uh, center of attention. I think he's just you know he's quick witted, and I appreciate that he's a rare character where his vices uh, actually uh, had him survive the film by looking for an after hours joint after uh, getting hammered. That's at the bar. true. Absolutely right. He lives. It's something that you always forget you know, that he lives, you know? Something I didn't notice until this this view, he is, like, ripped. He is, like, shredded in that sequence. So he's, like, <laughs> on the beach. I was like, thank God he, he wasn't he wasn't around because he could probably take Jason down. Well, that's, just like, the first one. Like, everybody is, even if they're, like, the nerd, they're just as ripped as the jock, you know? I, mean? I know. It's crazy. I mean, he's super thin, but, like, he's, like, pretty fit. You're like, Jesus. I got to like, say, I think he's, I think I, he's pretty funny. He, he does the tow truck prank, which is which is a good bit. That's a good prank. That, that's a good prank. He's great, the great prank, uh, yeah. What's Brown that sits on a piano, Beethoven's Last Movement. Good bit. Good piece of business there. And I I, I was going to say, I like, his, I like his friendship and his relationship with, uh, with Paul, where it seems like he's kind of uh, Paul's right-hand man. At the camp. It, oh, he absolutely is. And I, I also love the scene in the bar where he's kind of playing a little, uh, little lovey eyes with the, the bartender. I like that little sequence there. He's a human being. He's a he, human being. Even though he's a big dork, like, it, it, and it doesn't stop. Exactly. Him. And they kind of yeah, encourage well, him. I like that he, and I think too, because he doesn't have the gross um, neckbeard entitlement that Shelly does in the next movie. You know? Yes. Like, Paul, like, Paul, and he seems genuinely in, in, like he cares for other people. I mean, we're, we're, I, don't, I love how much you're reading into this character, but no, uh, yeah, and, and he also, I guarantee you, he's gotten laid before. Yeah. I guarantee you, Shelley never. Oh has. yeah, no, I, no, I, oh, I, yeah, no I question. Completely about. agree. And, and also, and there's sometimes he has like that. He has that like really thick New York, at North Jersey accent. Like, oh, hey, hey, go. And yet, I don't know. There's just something about him 
altogether that's super endearing. I don't know if I necessarily find him laugh out loud funny, but I, I he's charming to me, which which to me makes him a good character. Do, do you guys think that when they wrote the movie or filmed it, do you think it was just sort of a happy accident that he survived because they didn't know they didn't have time to do anything else with him, or do you I think wonder. they were like, oh, we're gonna subvert the trope of the guy, the class clown guy, you think is gonna die? Because in the, fir- in the first think, movie, but, but yeah, I only think there was a, a trope at the time. At that, yeah, point, I guess this, know, but, yeah. I mean, I guess in the fr- I, I just, I just can't imagine this character, you know, going to the after hours bar, having like the night of his life, and in the novelization, it reveals that he did hook up with that <laughs> yes. waitress. And waking up with a ha- waking up with a hangover at three o'clock in the afternoon the next day, and finding out that everybody's fucking dead. Yeah, the novelization is him well, waking up. The epilogue. <laughs> and something else that's interesting is, you know. You just feel like this guy, maybe he would come back. So he's left out there. You think, okay, well, maybe he's going to show up randomly and, like, help out, you know, like Paul does, like, again, randomly. But he never comes back. It's just weird that they – it's, like, one of the only characters that they just – they, you know, for, for a franchise that, like, builds itself on, like, on kill counts going as we go forward and stuff, to just have him – just be left at this bar and they never come back. It's just such a weird thing to have. Well, it's not just him. I mean, dozens. Most of the camp does not go back. The people who were out never come back. Yeah. Just, you know, think about what it. Of my, mean, what yeah. of my fa- one of my favorite side characters who I, I, I want to read fan fiction about is the, the black kid with the rainbow suspenders. It's fu- yeah. Like, what's his story? Him. Where is he from? And there's also, if you notice, an Asian-American camp counselor. Uh, sadly, neither of them get any lines, but they are there. They do you, exist. You, at this point. you know who they remind me of, and this is this is an odd cut. In Revenge of the Nerds, there's like these three. There's three nerds. There's a heavy set kid with a fedora. There's one who looks like Pete Wentz, and there's a uh, uh, an Indian nerd who you never never get a line of dialogue, but like they're always kind of there. And I feel like maybe like they're the Woodward and Bernstein of Re- <laughs> Revenge of the Nerds. They're gonna tell this. They're gonna tell a real story later on. Uh, or not? Woodward, not Woodward and Bernstein. No, and I'm thinking um, uh, Hamlet. Oh, or, uh, um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Rosencrantz yeah, and Guildenstern. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. what I meant. That's Shame good. on me. Yeah, it works either way. It works either way. Uh, before we move on, a couple notes about Stu Charno. He was also in Christine. Is one of the bullies. Doesn't have any dialogue. He gets killed at the uh, gas station explosion. But most famously, he is the killer in the X Files episode Clyde, Bruck, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Uh, with Peter Boyle, very famous Ooh, X Files right. episode, and he's very good in it. Very, yeah. he's not like Ted at all. I'll say that much about the episode. Um, Mac, I know you really want to talk about this character. We gotta jump. We gotta jump in. Uh, Jack Marks is Deputy Winslow, the cop who gets hammered after discovering Jason Shack. Mac, I give you thirty-five minutes to talk about it. Go. All right. <laughs> now, when he's running through the woods after, well, first of all, when he sees J- when you see that shot, and thank you, Steve, when you see the shot when he's driving and then you just kind of see Jason run off into the woods. Mm. That's a great shot. Uh, Chasing him through the woods. I like that you see, um, I think he steps through a puddle and then uh, Deputy Winslow steps through the puddle as well. And then later on, when Jenny runs off into the woods, she stops at that same puddle and you know that she's headed to the shed. Ah. And I love that, that little, I like that little bit that she actually like falls down and stops for a second where that puddle is. And I'm like, Oh, that's kind of a cool little, like we know where she's headed and it's not good. Um, also the hammer to the head, this beat Halloween two by six months. I was going to say the same thing. The share, the, 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 the deputy getting the hammer to the head. It's crazy. Uh, as a kill, I was like, I was like, wait, where did, wh- who did this first? And it actually is Friday the Thirteenth 
part two. So Halloween ripped off uh, Hall- ripped off Friday Thirteenth. I want to see the guy, <laughs> the actor who plays Mister Garrett, and this whoever this actor is get into a similar fight at a convention as the, as the two Jasons. <laughs> like, uh, you're like, claiming you're, you're like you're claiming you're, you're in Rick Rosenthal's Halloween too. You know you were in Friday Thirteenth Part Two. Um, That's a picture of my head with a hammer in it. Mike Vanderbilt, yeah, I know, you, yeah, I know you've been aching to that. say, Mike, I know you've been aching to say some things about this character, so please get it off your chest. Um, I'm just disappointed, like, and this movie was, re- I didn't realize until I was reading this uh, in the chapter, The Making of Friday the 13th, The Legend of Camp Blood by David Grove, how this one was really butchered by the censors. Yeah, we'll talk about and, that um, when we get to the great graphics. 100% agree, Mike. And. This one, like uh, the he, had, what a great death this would have been had they used. And I don't know if it was cut or if they. I I read they didn't even just they built the effect and didn't use it. But there was supposed to be a big blood splatter when um that hammer hit the back of his Oof. head. It's a it's still like a hard. Uh, it, hit, it hits Ooh, hard. That hurt. That had to hurt like a son Ugh, of a bitch. Gross. Too. Um, I do have one question for Dan before I move on. Uh, this uh, this this character's name is Deputy Winslow. Do you think that's a precursor to Family Matters, uh, Carl Winslow? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Only because I want it to be here. So, so yes. You know, we, we, talked, <laughs> we talked about how a lot of characters in, in this movie kind of mirror characters from the first one. But this, is, this character, I would say, is the first official jerk of the series. And that is Russell Todd, who plays Scott, who ultimately gets caught in a, uh, a rope trap and gets his throat slit by Jason. Do we have some comments? Mac, actually, I got to lead off with you again because I think you've got some interesting commentary, a connective tissue between the, the psychic going-ons of the Friday 13th franchise. We've got another character who can talk to dogs. There's a whole sequence where he's talking to Muffin about dancing and all this stuff. So I, I really love that follow-up. Um, uh, it, it's also very confusing to me because – they play Scott as this character that's kind of like this loser who can't get who can't get Terry. This is one of the most attractive men I've seen in my life. <laughs> like, I hate I hate how good so, looking he is. I it's absolutely so crazy. Hate how good. I, I think though she's I mean, kind of playing. She's, I think that she's kind of. There's a couple of times where she walks away with a smile on her face. Like they're kind of just playing back and forth. I feel like though. I think that it's going to happen eventually. You know. Yeah, yeah. But I just I think it's so funny because the way that he acts around her though he has like no game and you're like how does this guy have no game <laughs> like it's just bizarre because he relied on being good looking his whole life. I think, Do you guys also believe that he would carry around a slingshot? <laughs> Is he the kind of guy that you think would have a slingshot in his back pocket? Oh, sure. This guy seems like a real jerk. I mean, sure. But I mean, I see talk- Max saying, I, I think more of like Dennis the Menace types do that. You know, this guy, this guy, he's kind. Of, this guy's more of like a bully hunk kind of thing. So I don't know. Yeah, hey, he's an American original. Well, hey, we, we can't talk about Scott. Type. Listen, guys, we can't talk about Scott without talking about Terry, played by Kirsten Baker, who gets killed. Off camera, um, she's skinny dipping before discovering Scott's body. Uh, quick story or quick question for everybody: any any skinny dipping stories? We all went a few. We went no, skinny dipping I, after I, I, Paul's I, wedding. Paul Martinez's wedding. That's right. That was fun. Um, but, that was I, fun. but I don't know if we. I don't know if I have any like crazy stories though. Other than there have been times where we've gone skinny dipping, and, and it's been a great a great time. <laughs> a good a good time was had by all. I don't know if I have any like crazy stories though from it to you guys. No crazy stories, but Mac, you said you've never skinny dipped in a group or anything like that? 
No, no, no. I Dan Jan just reminded me that we did do that, and I totally forgot about that. <laughs> and my and honestly, we were all pretty drunk. Very that. memorable, apparently. Not that I'm some expert. Yeah. I've only done it a couple of times. In my experience, whenever there's been skinny dipping, it's actually not been not been very sexually charged. It's just kind of people hanging out and doing it. You know, you know what I mean? Like the, it, I don't think it's like in the movies. Like, oh my god, we're all going skinny dipping. It's like, who who's gonna get laid? Or I, I don't think <laughs> no, no. that. It's just very casual. Mo- most of my most of my skinny dipping experiences are they're rarely co-ed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like everybody's drunk. Let's get naked, you know. And then wait, wait. Yeah. I do have one. I do have one. It's not quite skinny dipping, but uh, all right. So before I got married, um, Dan Flieger, who sometimes is, is on this podcast and Losers Club, uh, and Paul Martinez, who's the guy we just talked about who got married, they took me to go get my wedding suit. And then at the end of the day, Paul's like, let's go to this Russian spa. It's, um, have you guys been there? Red Square? I think I've it's heard Paul. about it's it. In, yeah, it's in a, I think it's in Ukrainian village in Chicago. I don't know if it's around anymore. But, you know, and everyone's kind of walking around naked in those because that's what you do with those things. And I walked into this, uh, the steam room, and there's this huge Russian dude just laying there naked. And a thing you can do <laughs> is you can get, like, a scrub down. And I, I'm, I hope I don't sound like I'm body shaming here, This is, but this is what the, the image that came to mind he had like two guys around him just like scrubbing him with brushes and it reminded me of like an elephant getting cleaned at the zoo. Or like, oh I'm not saying, I'm, I'm, oh just because they were using, they were using actual brushes, like, like these huge, like giant toothbrushes almost. And also they do this thing at those, at those steam rooms where you can get uh, dry birch leaves and you get lightly slapped with them, which feels good. And so they were doing that to him and scrubbing him. He was just laying there so relaxed. It, it was I didn't really feel it wasn't gross. It was just I, it was surreal. I felt it was like visceral. I was into yeah, very visceral. You couldn't yeah. take your eyes off of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I walked out. I was know, like, man, this is strange. Yeah, just I never, I never Dan, like that. This is so far from a skinny dipping story. No, why? It's just a nudity story. Well, listen. All right, <laughs> let's, we, we got to move on. We, we got to move <laughs> right. on. Yeah, we do. Uh, let me know if you've got any other Russian bathhouse stories when we talk about Mark, oh. played by to- played <laughs> by Tom McBride. Well, Oh, yeah, we before... gotta go back to we gotta go back to Terry for a minute because she is probably the hottest uh, counselor in any of the Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> like she's right up there. She oh oh you know she is I, I forgot to mention this she's the first official quote unquote hot girl of the series, right? You, Are you? Would, 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 I'm kind of say surprised. That? Yeah. I'm kind of surprised that she dies so soon and like she does. I thought she was gonna make it longer just because she has a t- uh, a toughness about her too. Um, but I think like she doesn't get a very glorious death scene, or and a, a lot of she doesn't get much memorable stuff after that. Yeah, well, here's I feel like some people would say character. that she doesn't pass the uh, the Bechdel test because she exists only to be a, little, uh, a ploy to uh, to Scott. So just a little a toss yeah, out there for all the, she, the Bechdel you, test fans. You don't see her death, and then also I just want to throw out because we didn't talk about Scott's. He is is his signature mommy move. Uh, the slit throat is how he gets it. That's right. And I think that was also kind of cut and that back was a as Mrs. well. Mrs. Voorhees favorite, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, we got to talk about Mark, played by Tom McBride, who, um, as far as I can remember, for this franchise, obviously only is the only uh, paraplegic character in the franchise. Because I know Ned originally was going to have polio or something, right? What was the story with Ned? Yeah, he was supposed to have polio and have like you know just some uh, you know a deformity of sort on his legs. That's right, um, Mark. Just when he's about to to have a wonderful evening with Vicky, gets a machete to the head and it violently rolls brutal, in the, it. Is, it is so brutal. It is crazily brutal. And 
I think very effective. I think I like I do like it's the mean spirited, but there's also and I think this is very this is uh, a Steve a minorism, if you will. Um, there's a dark humor to it that it's bad enough. This guy, you know, you know, messed up his legs in that motorcycle accident, and now he's gonna get a machete to the face. Oh, but it's not over yet. He's gonna roll backwards down a flight. When he stairs. starts rolling backwards, it, the way they're having him bob up and down. I mean, it's it's so it's it's not. It's violent, but yeah, it's so violent it almost does feel comical a little bit. You're just like, Jesus, what are they doing to this poor guy? Like, it's just it's, it's just <laughs> so much. I mean, b- between him and Franklin and Texas Chainsaw, uh, there's something about seeing a person in a wheelchair get murdered like that that's just really it, it feels extra. You know, I don't I don't dislike it. I mean, I think it's a, they're both memorable characters and both memorable deaths, but it just it feels like so just feels so extra to me. Yeah, Mac, yeah. Mac, would you say things. Mac? Would you say that? Actually, let me ask you the question, Mac. Who's more yeah. likable, uh, Mark or Franklin from Texas Chainsaw Massacre? <laughs> I'm I'm Team Mark. Team Mark and Vicky. I was yeah. like rooting for them as soon as they show up in this movie. Uh, it's just funny. Um, Laura Marie Taylor was actually apparently really really into Tom McBride uh, and uh, was actually had a crush on him apparently um, due to uh, uh, Crystal Lake memories and then uh, found out that he was actually openly gay and uh, it's and that was a wrap behind the scenes. But I, I'm re- I was really rooting for them. And I, it's really funny because it's one of those – seeing that now is kind of funny because you can tell that she is really into him. Like there's something else going on in this movie. Like you can – it's like palpable like how much Vicky is actually into this character. Yeah, it, it bleeds and, in the movie. Um, she is another – she is another stone cold fox. She uh, is yeah. probably my favorite girl in the in the, in this one, and definitely top five uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, <laughs> well, ladies. we can jump before into we it. jump to Vicky. Or, but or before we jump to Vicky, uh, Mark. So something that they notice, I noticed in uh, Crystal Lake, they, they say that when Scott gets gets the throat slit by the back end of the machete. Uh, Mark gets the back end of the machete yes. into the head. And I thought that was interesting. Twice, two kills, like almost back to back. Uh, is with the wrong end of the machete, and I wonder why they made that decision. But um, it is with the back end. That's. I think it was had to do with they didn't they didn't dull down the blade enough, and that was the only way to make it to do it safely. That's possible. Is what I understand from reading, and they were just hoping that nobody would notice. Well, we talked about it. We might as well go into the character here, Vicky, played by as Mac mentioned, Lauren Marie Taylor, stabbed by Jason after discovering him hiding in bed. Uh, one of the more effective scenes of. The movie, if not the franchise, if I can go far enough, I think it's a really well executed scene with with him slowly emerging from the bed, and you get that the POV not only of him walking towards her with the knife, but also just her looking at him square in the eye. You know, I think it's a really creepy scene. What do you think, Dan? I would completely agree, and I I, I just want to say with with just Vicky and Mark, I think they I think those are probably. <laughs> the two deaths that hit me the emotionally hardest in these movies like I, i'm in the same but i really 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 am rooting for them is that that's the first time we is that the first time we see jason that's the first time we really get a good look that he's got a bag head yeah yeah it's it's interesting too that they keep him concealed for so long when the costume is so simple but i also kind of like that too i like that the movie really invests in the fact that, okay this is the simple gesture but it but it's also going to look really creepy. Yeah, I love I love that scene. I mean, I th- I think the whole third act of this movie is pretty fantastic. Just like one, it, it takes a while for the deaths to all start, but once they do, I I think it's all like uh, it's a little bit of a roller coaster ride, and I love it. <laughs> I think um I like how she is the assertive one in their relationship with Mark. You know, she's the one that says you know I, she's like I only want your fingers, and he's like whoa 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> 
for the game. Well, once again, the movie, the movie being like, then the movie being kind of progressive and subversive without, without I think realizing that, that it was being that. Like it kind of goes <laughs> against the tropes that we see in horror movies later on. Um, but yeah, I mean, at least I don't think it was that calculated, but it doesn't take away from its importance. It's happy accident. Yeah, Mac, what do you think about you? You like the scene too? I'm assuming. Yeah, no, I love the relationship they have. Um, I, I agree with Dan. It's it's a, it's a couple characters. They're just like true blue like into each other and they're not like shitty people and that you just, you really are rooting for them. So when they both get killed, it's just like really hard. You know, I will say this though, Vicky, you know, she's going to die because in the scene when she goes to change her, her panties out, she puts perfume on and Paul Holtz said no perfume because of the bears. Do you think Jason has bear qualities? Do you think that he smelled the perfume? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good touch. I like that. You know what? We're going to run with that for the rest of our lives. That's the only reason that she got got. He was going to actually just go straight and kill Jeff and Sandra, but he said, you know what? I'm just going to hang out here for a while. What, what's that perfume? Hmm. Um, speaking of the people I just mentioned, the the uh, the inseparable Jeff and Sandra, played by Bill Randolph and Marta Kober, respectively, um, they are basically the Jack and Marcy, as, as it were, of this movie. We talked about earlier... What a missed opportunity because I'm sure that, that that their death scene would have been much more impactful. I mean, I know it would have been much more impactful had we been able to to see it actually happen, you know? Mike Vanderbilt? Oh, yeah. And uh, I like uh, Jeff rocking his uh, Brian Johnson uh, ACDC look, playing playing his harmonica. Obviously musician. Am I mistaken that it wasn't – do you think part of why the death scene was cut also is because I think it involved – full frontal yes. nudity on her part, but she was underage. So they filmed it, but I think they realized they also couldn't show it. They filmed it and then found out afterwards that she was underage. And I was going to remark on her because she does like all these, all these uh, teenagers in these movies always look like they're in her twenties and thirties, but Sandra looks young. I, I, I feel like they all look like they're in their twenties. I, I feel like I, I believe that they, that she would have passed her older and that's why there was probably a, a vital mistake that was but made. She could be 18 or 19. I mean, I'm guessing she was 17. She, I think she's one of the youngest looking, uh, yeah, teenagers it, in, in, in slasher movie history. It, it is one of those watching it again. Now, I, you know, it's hard when I watch these movies that I watched when I was like eight years old, everyone always still remains and looks older than yeah. I think that they are. And I always think they're older <laughs> than me, but she does look really young. And then I, I remember seeing that on the, on the bit. And, um, realized oh i wonder why they i guess that's why they probably did cut that um but yeah they get that that's the that's the spear right yeah but the spear i mean but again he's on top so that's not what they cut they cut out another part of the sex scene i think is what they were talking about where you see more full frontal right just that's what that's what i that's what i read that's what i heard around the grape the the friday 13th part two grapevine Um, something i want to make a note of something i want to make a note of uh marta cober who plays sandra later appeared alongside a future Friday the 13th alum and Paul Schrader's Patty Hearst and I'll save that reveal for a future episode as to who it was and they're actually in the same scene together too it's very a strange coincidence um, wow I think that's really that's it and again we mentioned the fact that dozens of people in the movie survive because they go out having a good time drinking so I think it's, it's a good point to make that when in doubt go out go to an after hours bar and get shit faced <laughs> I think Mike Vanderbilt would appreciate when that advice go out uh, unless you're in quarantine. Unless you're in quarantine, for God's sakes. All right, well, let's let's move on to our next section, a section that is named after something that we, we couldn't change for this season. We had to keep it because it's so wonderful and it reminds us of, of, of Robert England. 
and it's a section we like to call Great Graphics. <laughs> what do you know? I beat my score. <laughs> All right, so for this section, th- uh, thank you very much, Freddy Krueger, by the way. Uh, we're going to be talking about, you know, who did the makeup for this movie and, and some of the effects scenes. And it's notable to start off by saying that Tom Savini, of course, was asked back, but he was uh, doing another film at the time. Notably, Stan Winston was going to do the makeup, but then he also had to drop out because of another movie. So the person who ended up getting the job was somebody named Carl Fullerton. Now, sadly, much like really the future movies after the first one, the MPAA was really, really starting to crack down on, on violence in cinema. And we talked about the spear sequence earlier. There's a number of sequences that were kind of trimmed back besides that. So this movie's definitely a victim to that. There aren't really a lot of memorable uh, deaths like you get with that first movie. Uh, I've got some notes about his career, but do we want to kind of go around and, and talk about the effects in this movie and, and uh, how impactful they were for you? If we can start off with uh, my brother, Mac. Yeah, you know, I, I I really dig the makeup for Jason. Yeah. I think that he looks really great. Uh, some of those things. I think the, the machete in the head is great. I think that looks really, like, visceral. But, yeah, I agree. I think, unfortunately, because of the I, the fact that they were cutting back on, on some of these sequences, you don't – it's not as, as – um, they aren't as memorable or as bloody – um, as uh, future fr- future uh, Friday movies would become, Mike. Um, I do agree that this is one of the best designs for Jason. Uh, possibly my second or third favorite, and I think it's the most authentic as to what Jason would have probably looked like. He wouldn't have had a bald head. He would have had a beard uh, from living in the woods like that. And I think it's notable that this is where, like, the Friday Thirteenth movies, like. Whereas the first one kind of kickstarted all the the knockoffs, like Jason kind of looks like what you would later see in, or you later associate with knockoff Friday the 13th movies, like uh, Madman, like where it's just kind of deranged hillbilly in a, a flannel shirt and overalls and like the long hair and everything. Uh, but yeah, the deaths on the deaths are great. I think there's two great, uh, two of my, well, actually, I guess three of my favorite deaths in the series in this one, but Unfortunately, uh, because of the cuts to the gore, uh, it, it loses some of that impact. Yeah. Dan, what do you think about the effects in the movie? Yeah, what everyone else has said, too. I think, I mean, Mark Mark gained the machete to the head and down the stairs. I mean, that's the one that sticks out as the most memorable to me. It's funny that Mike brought Mad Men because I just watched that, and uh, I was thinking the same thing about, like, oh, this is kind of what, – what's the guy's name in Mad Men, Mike? Oh, do you remember? Man. Mad Men Mars. Mad Men Mars. Yeah, like it had that kind of thing, and uh, or even, like – predating wrong turn or you know any of these redneck hillbilly things and i like to i mean i don't know i i kind of like the over the top zombie jason once we get to you know jason lives and uh um Absolutely. you know eventually when you when you see him on mass he's just got this like black rotting face i mean that's kind of cool too but also i like that you could tell with this they were really thinking about okay what would this guy really look like how long would his hair would be what would his what would the deformities from when he was a little kid look like as he was an yeah. adult so yeah and um it's kind of funny because although this is one of my favorite friday movies yeah i don't remember it as much for the gore or the deaths which it with whereas with some of the other ones like three especially i feel like i remember more for the sequences and the deaths than the actual film being i, I think you could body. say dan dan you could say that it's a testament to the movie that it's not that it still works despite the fact that there isn't some huge a bunch of huge gore set pieces you know what i mean i agree with you guys i think the uh the mark machete to the head is 
is is really really good. And unfortunately, the spirit stuff's cut back. Um, I want to talk about Carl Fulton's career. He's had an interesting career because he he didn't do a lot of horror after this, but he he worked on broadcast news, Casualties of War, Goodfellas, and a lot of other kind of Oscar-y movies in the, in the decades after. Most notably, though. He is Denzel Washington's personal makeup artist on every movie dating back to The Siege in 1998. So he is Denzel Washington's personal makeup artist for all of his movies. I thought that was a very... He's also a, he, he's also a protege of Dick Smith. I did not know that. Who did The Exorcist, Which is, I believe. Or rather, Dick Smith recommended him, I believe, uh, according to that book. Wow, that's pretty. I didn't see when they were looking Dick, for a guy Dick to Smith, do the... Dick Smith does the uh, does the intro to that Tom Savini book I was showing last night. Also, Dick Smith is amazing. Hey, if anybody out there listening hasn't seen The Exorcist, you should probably go check it out. <laughs> you imagine somebody. Um, so that's really uh, that's really it for this category, I guess. Let's move on to the next one, um, which is appropriately called "Help! He's killing me! He's killing me!" <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is going to be the shortest category we ever do for um, any of the movies, not only in this franchise, but anything to come. And for me, the best death of this movie is, believe it or not, Mark with the machete to the face and rolling violently down the, ste- the steps in the rain and lightning. I agree. I ag- Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree, but I want to bring up that I think the scariest death in the movie is that of Vicky. Yes, with the reveal of Jason and then that slow, uh, the way the camera follows the knife. And I have, I remember I was a grown ass man. Uh, I was in my, you know, in my twenties and I fell asleep watching a uh, Friday the 13th marathon on USA or something. And I woke up during that scene and scrambled to find the remote because I was so fucking scared and I couldn't find a remote and I just had to get through it. Man. So I have a, I guess I have a, a, a a visceral response to that to that scene. I love the image of you like like retreating in your like lazy boy chair or something like like trying to cover up your eyes <laughs> like bourbon <laughs> yeah. knocking down a bourbon bottle. At yeah, twenty years old like. Ugh. Um. Again, such great memories watching these. Even on USA when they were even more edited, I still love watching these movies growing up. So what can I say? Let's let's move on to our next category. That is called. He's still there. Okay, this kind of goes back to, once again, uh, the, the, the muffin conundrum. Of, <laughs> do we think, again, having we're watching this movie in 1981, right? Do we think that Jason survives this movie? Mac. Yeah, because from here on out, oh, well, I guess watching this, yeah, because, you know, if he can survive drowning, <laughs> he's going <laughs> to live through a machete uh, almost probably through his heart. The way that machete goes through his shoulder is pretty deep. Um, but yeah, I think at this point we have to suspend our our, our disbelief there, and 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 I think that he, I believe that uh, Jason survives this film. Um, mm. there's there's no like bubbles in the lake at the end of this, right? There's no like it just goes back and you see the the mother's head, but. I don't. I, I do believe that he's still he's still out there, Mike. 
undoubtedly he survives this one. I I mean, not to, you know, bury the lead or anything. I think he I don't think he's actually dead until part three. Gotcha. That's that's a good point. We'll talk about that too. Dan, what do you think? If you're in nineteen eighty one, you're watching this movie, it's over. Is Jason alive or dead? Yeah, I, th- I think he's definitely alive. I mean, because even the machete, we don't, we you know, could have like just missed his heart or his lungs or something like that. Even though it does go go pretty deep into there. Also, Mac and I were talking. And I I would just want to bring up. It's not a kill, but I, my favorite shot in the whole series, and I think it's so effectively scary. It's it's where they run back into the cabin and Jason's chasing mm. them, and you see through the window. You just see him kind of coming down the hill and and you know he of course bursts in in a few moments later and it's funny because it's like when you see him in the background they're not trying to hide that from the audience and and even the characters i don't think they are fooled at that point or anything that he's dead but there's something about the way that shot just on the periphery which once again maybe it's a minorism that i i think is so effective it's almost so casual and low-key in a movie in a movie that's not very low-key that it sticks out as being really frightening to me and what i like about that scene dan i 100 percent agree is that it's not like we see him coming, and then it's a minute later that she discovers it. No, she discovers it shortly after we do. Yeah, it's like right do. there, yeah. Yeah, but it's I think that's really, fool us. It's, it's so good. Love it. That's yeah, really, really good. Um, as for me, I think he does – I mean, again, again, taking into consideration we do not know anything about what he's going to look like in the third one, <laughs> I think that he does come bursting through that window at the very end. So I do believe that uh, – that might be a controversial opinion, but I think that he does live. And for some reason, maybe because he thinks that Jenny – is he's still confused and thinks that Jenny might be his mom. Maybe that's why he leaves her behind. That's my theory on that. And um, so, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, in 1981, I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking forward to Friday the 13th Part 3. So let's, uh, let's move on to our final category, aptly titled, The Final Chapter. But now, Jason's reign of terror is over. Okay, so yeah, we're going to give up our, our final thoughts. And Dan, this is your first episode, so we're doing this on a scale of one to five hockey masks. So let's have uh, hmm, Mike Vanderbilt kick it off. What I like about uh, I, I, this is probably one of my favorite entries in the Fighter to 13 series because I really think this is where it starts finding its footing and turning into what we think of when we think of a Fighter to 13th. Um, but it's still got one foot in the classicism of the first film, which I believe I gave four hockey masks to. Yeah. So despite, you know, the lack of gore, I think this one has some memorable characters. It's before it's before the slasher movie started just creating characters that you hate and wanted. Even uh, what's his name? The the good looking kid who's kind of a creep. Yeah. He, he's he's all right. He's not the worst. <laughs> he's. It's not like when you get to part seven where every Ugh. movie, every character in that movie is a fucking You're asshole. Right. Um, but I think this one, it much like Halloween 2, it, it, it does a good job of carrying the aesthetic from the first one where it kind of, you could watch them together and it could feel like one long movie. Maybe not quite as uh, long as The Irishman, but it's up there. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give this one, uh, if I gave the first one four, I'm going to give this one four I'll give it four and a half because you're starting to really come into what a Friday the 13th movie is. Gotcha. So you do have this a little higher in, in your rankings uh, than the original. Interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, Mac, what do you got? Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I'm on board uh, with with Mike there. Uh, I I really like this movie. It, it always holds up. I, I, I have 
I, I mean, I really like the first film, but I don't think I gave it five. I think I gave it four. So um, I, I needed some room to move. I, I, I really enjoy this one. I think that Jason's really scary. I love, I love some of the, the shots that towards the last like 15 minutes of this film. Um, I, I'm going to give it four hockey masks and uh, a machete. Uh, so it's a little, I think I, it lands a, a little bit more for me in terms of, and I think it's just, just the sheer fact that it's, it's really the first Jason movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and that holds a special place for me in terms of watching this and kind of like becoming a part of this, a fan of this franchise. This was kind of like the, the beginning, whereas Friday the 13th almost always feels to me like kind of a prequel, uh, like you were saying, mm. Justin, but, but for me, the first one kind of feels like a prequel because so much of it is Jason going forward. Um, but yeah, so four hockey masks and a machete. Dan Caffrey. I will also go four and a half hockey masks. Um, I have my rankings for the movies here, and it, this always fluctuates between being my second uh, or my third favorite. Um, and I think I like it better than the first one. It has more momentum. I think the characters are a little bit more interesting. Um, it gets to the point a little bit quicker. I think, it, once again, I don't think that this was intentional on the filmmaker's part, but I feel like it actually subverts some of the tropes that it set up in the first film. Um, and I just really love the simplicity of it and the Jason we get. And it just, like I said, feels grounded in a way that maybe some of the other later movies don't. And then my, my favorite Friday movie is a movie that doesn't feel grounded at all, but I think it's on purpose. Um, yeah, we'll talk. So we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that, that thought. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, four four and a half for me, man. It's it's like I said, it's either my second or third favorite uh, Friday movie, depending on the day of the week. Yeah, if I've got Friday the Thirteenth, the original, kind of on on tier one by itself in a way. There's a, a tier two, and Friday the Thirteenth Part Two is is definitely on that tier for me. I think the only reason I've got kind of below the first one is, be, is because, especially after rewatching that first one a few more times over the last couple of years, I really do love the naturalism of that first one. And this one definitely does feel a little bit more like you're watching a proper movie. Now, again, I think that Steve Miner is ultimately a better filmmaker or better director than Shaz Cunningham. And uh, we talked about his strengths in this movie with the clever POVs. Dan, you mentioned that really great shot about the periphery with Jason running. I'm not sure if Shaz Cunningham would have come up with that type of a, a move, you know. Um, but this movie, I, I think that Baghead Jason, because that idea of Jason has not been milked to death over the years in pop culture, it still resonates in a way that the hockey mask doesn't for yes. me. Uh, I think that Amy Steele's Jenny, again, is arguably the best final girl of the series and superior to most final girls of the slasher era. Um, so while it's not as scary as the original, in the realm of the Friday the 13th movies, I would give it uh, four hockey masks and uh, like a little, a little slingshot rock. How about that to keep with the gosh? To keep with it. Well, gang, this has been a lot of fun. Um, be sure to check back in with us on Consequences Sounds Twitch channel on Saturday the 18th at 9 Eastern, 8 Central. Hopefully, those times won't change for any technical reasons. Where we'll be revisiting this movie once again, Friday the 13th, part two, where you can hear us offering up live commentary about the movie, but mostly just shooting the shit as we or want to do so often. And uh, hopefully a lot of you watched the first movie when we did it a couple weeks ago. We had a great time doing it. It seems like people enjoyed it a lot. And we'll be back for more thrills, chills, spills, and kills. Also, be sure to join us on Instagram live every Friday in April at 6 Eastern, 5 Central for Halloween's Happy Hour, 
where we'll be popping up to chat with one another and interact with those of you chiming. And hopefully Mike Vanderbilt will have another drink for us uh, again. I'm sure he's already thinking about it, and I'm sure <laughs> it'll be as delectable. <laughs> I can taste it right I can, now. I, we can all taste it right now. Um, so that's a lot coming up in Halloweenies land, and I should probably mention the fact that we'll have another podcast episode, and it will be in 3D. Or more factually, just available as a podcast episode. Yep, we're heading to <laughs> Higgins Haven to see Jason finally put on that hockey mask for Friday the 13th Part 3, a.k.a. Friday the 13th Part 3D. It's a loaded schedule, but we've got time, and we know a lot of you out there do too. So everybody listening, stay safe. Let's get through this together. And until next time, That works. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Oh, that was good. Consequence Podcast Network. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.